So as I was driving in today, and there's plenty to talk about, Pacers in action tonight taking on Joel Embiid and the Philadelphia 76ers, for example, will be a big part of the conversation. But as I was driving in today, and this is what I love about Indianapolis, the fact that, you know, I was born and raised here. And each time that I come into downtown, I see different parts of the city that remind me of something that happened like in my childhood or just seeing the development and the growth of Indianapolis. And I've told the story many, many times that I think people remember Lindner's double dip for a dime time when I was a kid and we would, on Sunday nights, my parents would take my sister and I and we'd get ice cream at Lindner's at 62nd and Allisonville and then drive downtown. We'd always go, you know, we're going to go for a drive and we'd drive downtown and my parents would just point out different areas of Indianapolis of of you know, of lore and of pop culture and of the current and everything else. Like anybody else remember the house that was at like, oh, I I guess it would have been on maybe Delaware, a little bit north of 16th Street. And the guy collected hearses and like cannons in his front yard circa like 1980. Anybody else remember that? Literally, it was like the creepiest thing ever. This back before everything was gentrified. And, you know, you're, you're driving up and it's like, oh, that guy's got a cannon and four dilapidated, broken down hearses in his front yard. That's not normal. But stuff like that. But we would drive down and and see the development of the Hoosier Dome week by week, what the latest was. You know, oh, man, they got another level put on it. And it felt like that today, driving down Capitol. It was kind of fun. I got to about... I came from the north and I got to Capitol and probably like Ohio Street. And it's like you can't, well, Ohio would be too far south, but you couldn't see the One America building, which was the AUL building when I was a kid. You couldn't see the Salesforce Tower, which wasn't around. The only thing on the skyline you could see was the Hyatt and the Eagle's Nest. And I'm like, it is 1981, baby. Like, where are the billboards for the National Sports Festival? So we absolutely turned back the clock, and it was fun. And, Jimmy, the best part about it is it was not zero degrees outside. That's always a win in my book, Jake. You know that. The best, right? Yep. Now, you are wearing for the – how many are, – are, is this the thing – Don't ask like, questions you don't want to know the answer to, Jake. We are at Thursday here on Query and Company. And for that matter, it's Thursday for everybody on the planet. But um, you are wearing – I guess it's, is it Thursday in Australia? I guess it's Friday in Australia, right? Yeah, I believe so. But for the fourth straight day, you're wearing a chief shirt. Now, how far into this run can you go? Without a duplicate? Yes. Probably 12 days. So this is a a rather faded Mickey Mouse chief shirt, right? Correct, yes. Now, is that made to look faded or have you had that since you were like 10? (laughs) It's made to look faded. Okay. I mean, it's kind of cool, actually. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Um, Chiefs getting set in the AFC title game, of course, against the Baltimore Ravens. A game that might look like this outside, right? Very well could. I mean, I'm tired of, in terms of wanting to see good offensive play. You know, I'm an offensive-minded guy, whether it's football or basketball. And not that there weren't fireworks in that Bills-Chiefs game, but if it's 40 degrees and kind of like this, just misty, that's, that's fine with me. I'd rather have that. No real excuses for either side. In terms of, oh, it was too cold or whatever. Yeah, I, this is this is fine for me if this is what ends up happening. Uh, it is the noon hour here on a Thursday. Good afternoon to you. My name is Jake Query. That is the voice of Jimmy Cook. It is Query and Company here on 93.5 and 107.5. The fan, Eddie Garrison, man in the controls for us. 
A lot to talk about. We will preview the Pacers and the Philadelphia 76ers, which that game is going to be tonight at Gamebridge Fieldhouse. Looking forward to that. Last night, uh, I went to see To Kill a Mockingbird at Clues Hall. I love the Broadway series at Clues. You know, they, they move it around, but at Clues in particular, I thought the this playwright edition of To Kill a Mockingbird to me was interesting because there were some legal things that took place with the estate of Harper Lee about the liberties taken of the book. And I'm not going to give it away for people that may still be going because I think last night might have been one of the first nights of the showing of it. Maybe I might be naive on that, but I know there are, it goes through the weekend at the very least. Um, there are indeed, a li- there's a little bit of liberty that's taken just in the way of the portrayal of the story of To Kill a Mockingbird, but it is still great. It is, I love going to the Broadway shows. Mike DeCourcy has gone to several. I'll have to ask him when we, he joins us today at 2 o'clock. I have seen Mike at shows before. Now, Jimmy, have you been to Clues Hall on the Butler campus for a show? Once, I think in, in middle school, but it's been a, been a long time. Okay, Eddie, have you been to Clues Hall on the Butler campus? I have not. Okay, here's a tip for either of you if you are going to Clues Hall for anything. It's a fabulous, it, it literally is a state-of-the-art, gorgeous facility. It's been there. It's been a crown jewel of Indianapolis since, you know, I was a kid. The only thing I will say, if you are going to go to Clues Hall, and especially if your seats are towards the middle of your section, don't drink any liquids for 36 hours ahead of time. <laughs> and even with that, stop and use every public restroom before you get there. Because for a facility as gorgeous and as beautiful and as state-of-the-art as it is, it has two restrooms, and each one is equipped for like a gas station, except for that it holds like 4,000 people. So if you are sitting towards the middle of your section and intermission comes and it's kind of hard to get out, by the time you get out into the lobby, um, literally it's like waiting in line for the beast. (laughs) Like they have little signs that say like line jumping is not a sport for the restroom here and you must be this tall to ride this ride. Do they have fast passes? Uh, they should. I mean, let me tell you. Uh, unfortunately, the, I mean, as you get older, that pass comes faster. Believe you me. <laughs> believe you me. But anyway, good time uh, last night. But I got up today and, you know, along with the weather and everything else, um, just scanning through as I do, kind of looking over the layout of the day. And I'm thinking about the Pacers game tonight and the fact that Philadelphia is coming into town with Joel Embiid. And this has been kind of the nightmare matchup, especially for Miles Turner over the course of his career, right? And there's not, that's not a knock on Miles Turner. Joel Embiid is a guy that is difficult for a lot of people to contend with, right? A lot of people to contend with. Um, but he's coming off a pretty decent performance, Jimmy. But you know, now that you have – and I thought Siakam – I don't know why, you know, in my mind, I was thinking of Siakam as more of a wing defender. I think he has the ability to defend, but I don't know that that's his calling card. But um, they still need some some bulk defensive help, I think, for Miles Turner. Maybe maybe Walker eventually becomes that guy, but it's a big test for them tonight. Yeah, I mean, it's a weird, not back-to-back, but weird string of two consecutive opponents in that regard of dominant bigs and where you want kind of your size of your lineup to be matched up against when you look at Jokic just a couple nights ago and him pretty much having his way with 31 and you would think 
it's obviously not going to be 70 or Jake dreamed about 76, but as effective as Embiid is, it wouldn't surprise me if he sniffs around that 30 point mark or something to that degree. It is another barometer game for the Pacers, albeit shorthandedly, where if you're going to look at Indiana and say that they are a piece away, if you still feel that way, they're a piece away from being a real contender. Well, the counter pushback to that is, well, when Tyrese Halliburton is healthy, their bench is better than anybody in the NBA. And the association, their bench is going to dominate any second unit. It's going to keep them not just in games, but potentially extend leads. And now you're needing them to not play outside their means, but step up in maybe a couple of different roles that wouldn't be asked of them if you were at full strength with the leader of your team and Tyrese Halliburton out there. Another key area, though, and I've been saying this for the last couple of weeks, this is another growing opportunity for Benedict Matherin, even though I think we're a year away from this conversation, but another opportunity for him to show that he is a Robin or a, a, a fair part of this big three or whatever you want to call it that the Pacers are building right now at Cambridge. The NFL, the Associated Press Comeback Player of the Year finalists have been announced. Now, you guys as degenerate gamblers, if you're gambling on Australian tennis, did you win last night, Eddie, your bet? I did. Eddie did win. Okay. I lost. Did you get a free Bloomin' Onion for that? Not yet. <laughs> if she wins the Open, then maybe. I would like to know what the wagering odds are on this list of finalists for the Associated Press Comeback Player of the Year in the National Football League. The list consists of the following players. Tua Tagovailoa. Uh, is- Tagovailoa. Tungavaloa. I always I always say Tagavaloa, but it's Tungavaloa. Mm-hmm. Tua is why it's why everybody calls him Tua. Correct. Right? Okay, so Tua Tungavaloa of Miami. Baker Mayfield of Tampa Bay. Matthew Stafford of the Los Angeles Rams. Joe Flacco of the Cleveland Browns. And DeMar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills. Now, DeMar Hamlin has to be what, like, the like you, you wager $100 and you win 101 So, they're off of the books, They I think, because a lot of these, the finalist list coming out. And because they engraved the trophy the second that he went out and accepted an SBS. That's why it's off the books. That, that, that could be that as well. So, this is from covers.com which is another betting website out there and they cite DraftKings odds this would have been from January 10th of this year so two weeks ago DeMar Hamlin was the betting favorite at minus 140 so you bet 140 you win 100 bucks Joe Flacco at plus 100 Baker Mayfield at plus 1200 Matthew Stafford at plus 7500 if there was a name that you listed in the finalist they were not taken into consideration by this website when they posted these odds so if there was a name that you said, I it doesn't have the whole list. It just has, I think, the four betting favorites at the time two weeks ago. The so Hamlin or Flacco is basically I, where it leads. Flacco is definitely an interesting. You know, the guy was on his couch, right? I mean, it's pretty amazing yeah. what he did. But having said that, like I, I saw on social media when it was announced, and one of the replies says, "Having Demar Hamlin's name on this list is an insult to the other players that actually played." And I'm like, or you could make the argument that having the other guys' names on the list is an insult to Demar Hamlin, who actually flatlined. He died. Like, what do you? It's you know what I mean? To, I get it. I understand. There's discourse behind it because in normal circumstances, it is a player that had a down year or was injured, and then the following season made leaps and bounds improvement of their play on the field. 
but it's tough by definition of comeback <laughs> when you literally came back from the right. dead to some extent. There's, there's not many more leaps and bounds <laughs> one can take than from, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's tough because the Flacco story is fantastic. And any other year, he probably wins it. But the other thing is this. You know who actually should win the award? Who's that? Instead of an NFL comeback award, it should be a dedication award. The dedication to the body double that is filling in for DeMar Hamlin after the conspiracy theory that he actually passed away um, and it was covered up and they they hired someone to act like him. For that guy to actually go out and play in NFL games is amazing. I don't it's, wa- it's one thing to find an actor that kind of looks like him, yeah. but to actually find one that looks like him and then can also go out. Now, granted, maybe the real DeMar Hamlin would have gotten the fake punt, mm-hmm. but still, that is that is severe dedication on the, on behalf of somebody to put themselves in NFL playing shape just to pick up uh, you know, a contract for a couple of appearances. I'm sorry that I had to give this away, but you forced my hand now. It's actually not an NFL Honors Award, the one you're talking about. It's actually going to be at the Oscars. And I, I just, I, it was like one of the last awards of the night. And now the cat's out of the bag. I'm sorry. I mean, for real, right? Um, I, one would assume, though, that, that uh, kidding aside and sarcasm aside, and how do you not give that to DeMar Hamlin, right? No, I mean, I, I think it's Hamlin. I've heard the counterpoints to, well, maybe it's like a, a lifetime award or it's some other type of recognition for Hamlin. But this has been a foregone conclusion since he made his recovery. That totally. as long as he was a part of the Bills and made this return to the field, it would fit all those parameters. It's it's too great of a story to not, I think, award him comeback player of the Jake, year. Jake, Hamlin had three tackles all season. Is most improved player a football award or a soap opera award? It Understood. I get it. But the reality is, I mean, come on, right? It, it, look... Awards in general and the definition of them have been skewed for a while when you think about this. The most valuable player. Okay? The most valuable player award. Well, who is a more valuable player? I mean, Lamar Jackson is a fabulous player for the Baltimore Ravens. And he is probably the best player in the National Football League, right? But they've got a good roster. They've got a good, you know, maybe that's a bad example. Basketball is probably a better sport to do this with. But the age-old argument of, you know, is it a player that is the best player or the one that if you remove them, the team automatically falls apart? I mean, clearly, Peyton Manning, Peyton Manning, the year that he had neck surgery and missed the, the season for the Colts, should have won most valuable player. He should have won right. the MVP. Because you saw what it was like without him. Correct. You removed him, and therefore you say to yourself, that guy's the most valuable player in the National Football League because he missed a season, and as a result, his team didn't win a game for like 13 weeks. There you go. There's your MVP. I've always viewed the MVP award as it the only way to do it fairly without driving yourself insane is to do it off of numbers, the full body of work, QB, because it's always a quarterback award. I'm going to reference QBR because that's almost always who it is. Maybe Tyreek Hill gets 2,000 yards someday and that changes, but it's always a quarterback award. It's the complete body of work for that season because if you have the other argument of what happens if you take this guy away, well, at some point with the quarterback list of greats in the league right now, and it was the same back then with Brady and Manning, I would contend, Mahomes, Burrow, look at the Bengals without him. Jackson, you look at the teams 
with where their goals were with the quarterback, and when you take them away, what happens? All of them are pretty much not Super Bowl contenders anymore without their star. Right. So it has to be but about winless, the numbers you put I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah, winless is insane, right? Now, That's crazy. Here's but. an interesting point somebody says, and on, on the surface it sounds good, but let me take a second to cross-examine it, okay? Jake, here's how you get around it. You announce that you're naming the award the DeMar Hamlin Award going forward, but you give it to Joe Flacco. Except for this. If you call it the DeMar Hamlin Most Valuable, or excuse me, the, the DeMar Hamlin Comeback Player of the Year Award, then you are naming it for a guy that you, by your own definition and by your own yeah. proof in the pudding, are showing did not qualify to win the award. It's pretty hard to name an award after somebody that did, wasn't qualified enough to win it, right? Yes. I still say he's going to win it. Well, Flacco does make an interesting case, though. I'm cool with it if it's Flacco, but I remember last year, the, the second that he... I was doing the morning show with Kevin and Mark before Andy came over, and I remember saying, like, we all three agreed, as soon as the roster cuts were made for the Buffalo Bills, we're like, well, that's a done deal, right? DeMar Hamlin's yeah. going to win the comeback player right. of the year. Now, your, your Chiefs shirt... Reminds me of this story, which I saw also this morning when I was kind of getting the ducks in a row for the show, that I thought was very cool. And I don't know what will come of it. Probably nothing. But there is a fellow that is a fan fan of the Detroit Lions that lives in England. And he, he put a post on social media. He's probably, I would guess by looking at, well, I can tell you because he said he was like 10 in 1985 so this guy would be three years younger than i so pushing 50 48 48 49 years old somewhere in there and he tells the story of being a kid from scotland either a kid from scotland who was visiting england or a kid from england that was visiting scotland might have been the latter but either way he was with his mom touring in one of those two countries and they were at like a royal palace or something like that where you do and you've had this happen guys where you do like a tram you get on the you know the little tram and you ride around or you get a tour a little tour cart whatever and he and his mother were placed with another family you know seats eight or whatever and so they got in in the the buggy he and his mom and then a family that happened to be from detroit and had small children and this family from detroit says you know what's your name you know i'm I forget the guy's name, Ben, I think was his name. And he's a 10-year-old kid from overseas, right? And so they say, oh, well, we're from Detroit. And we, and you know, well, what's Detroit like? And so they said, well, we have a football team called the Lions, but football's different for us than it is for you. And so they, during the course of their little afternoon tour, they're telling this kid all about the Lions. And he said the dad is telling him about like this majestic being of the Detroit Lions and whatever else. And at the end of it, the dad gave the kid his cap that had the lions on it and said, here, you can, here's a souvenir from the United States. And the guy was like, since then, I have stayed up every night on Sunday nights until, you know, one o'clock in the morning watching Detroit Lions games if it's on at night. And I have stuck through them from 1985 to now. I've been a diehard fan. I have not missed a game. My, and he's like, I have an interesting job now. And he posted a picture of himself in front of 10 Downing Street. So one would assume he has a prominent job in London now. But he anyway, he's like, I want to find the family that introduced me to the Detroit Lions because I want to be able to celebrate with them if the Lions go to the Super Bowl and maybe watch the Super Bowl with them. Now, you tell me if this guy is able to find if I'm a family from Detroit, 
I'm getting a hold of this guy and I'm going, look, let's just make it up. And like that way they'll fly you over here and like NBC will fly. But if this guy comes over and they find the family, which would now have three kids in their 50s and the, the parents, if they're still living, knock on wood and, and God willing, would be like in their 70s. If they actually find the family and this guy comes over from London to watch the the Super Bowl of the Detroit Lions with the family that introduced him on a serendipitous meeting some 40 years ago, that has to be in the pregame show, right? Yes. Without question. Has to be. Somewhere before or after the 99-year-old uh, season ticket holder for the Lions. Yeah, that guy's got to be there too, right? Yeah. But you know what's going to happen, unfortunately. What? They're going to get beat by San Francisco, and it's oh. going to be a moot point. No, you thought I was going to say the 99-year-old's going to pass away. I did. I did. <laughs> no, the, the Lions are the Lions are probably – is this the end of the road? I mean, it looks like it. San Francisco is probably a more complete team, but if Goff takes care of the football the way that he has, they have the weapons, I, I think they can hang around. I would still pick the Niners, but – I think they can hang around. I think that six and a half is, is what the Niners are favored by. I think that's a little too much. I do think that, and I've talked about Goff a lot. I think we kind of undersell him, don't we? It's like we 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 tend to forget that this guy has been to a Super Bowl. I mean, it's not like the Lions. This isn't Joe Flacco. I mean, he was a number one overall pick in the draft. He's probably still relatively in his prime. And they've got good pieces around them. I mean, I do think that they, you know, right now the Lions are this cute feel-good story, but so were the Warriors when Steph Curry first got going, right? And then if the Lions stick around, if this lasts for three or four years, then guess what? I got news for you, Jimmy. It's going to be like your Kansas City Chiefs. Patrick Mahomes was a, was a darling for a while there, right? Yep. Travis Kelsey was a great player that like, oh man, unheralded guy. And then that guess da- what happened? That darling thing quits after a while. Then you become villains. And then the Detroit story is no longer a feel-good story. It is, ah, I'm so tired of hearing about the Lions. In terms of golf, I think it gets overemphasized for two reasons, Jake. Three, actually. One, the quarterbacks that are around him in this era. Like, it, he's always going to be in the second breath when looking at active quarterbacks right now. Second point would be what happened to him in that Super Bowl, the way that the Patriots and Bill Belichick kind of undressed him and the Rams, who were viewed as one of the most explosive offenses the last five or six years. And third would be the Rams then thinking, no, we can't get it done with you. We're going to ship you off, and we're going to go get a quarterback we think is better. Now, that said, he clearly got his redemption, bouncing the Rams in wildcard weekend two weeks ago, and he's going to have an opportunity to punch a ticket to the Super Bowl. A lot of it just comes down to if Debo Samuel's able to go, then that's, which it sounds like he's going to, that's full weapons available for Kyle Shanahan. That offense I mean, is great. I mean, it, it doesn't everybody have to play typically go game. this time of year. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I always got a kick out of it. When Marvin Harrison was in his final year with the Colts and he was hurt. I can't remember if it was hamstring or what the, was it knee? It might've been knee. I think it was knee, but at any rate, the the narrative always was, you know, Marvin isn't going to go this weekend, but if this is must win, then he would play. If this were a must win game, he'd play. It's the national football league. Like 
You're one away from the Super Bowl. All you talk about, like you can't have T-shirts that say one game at a time and then tell me that a game is not a must win, right? Yeah. Every game is must win. Literally every game is must win. Or else you you can't preach it otherwise. I mean, yeah, you got to be consistent. I think the Lions unquestionably belong there. I don't think they are completely outmatched by San Francisco. That said, I think the most vulnerable that you've seen the Niners was what happened to them against Green Bay, which is yucky weather, your star weapon goes down, and the Packers are good enough to hang around. You don't need an injury for that to happen. You don't need bad weather for that to happen. But if the Lions play as effectively as they have through two rounds of the playoffs, there's no reason they can't be in this thing late and maybe even punch a ticket to Vegas. Is a coach with former ties to the state of Indiana going to end up moving back close to where he once worked and end up at Michigan? Jim Harbaugh is the new head coach of the Los Angeles Chargers. We know that now. I saw a guy that I work with on IndyCar Radio works covering sports in Toledo and said, you know, they'll eventually build a statue for Jim Harbaugh at Michigan. I'm like, will they? Will they? I'd be curious to know because I know that they won and there's a lot to like about that. But but if you're a Michigan fan, aren't you kind of like, yeah, he's leaving us like kind of at the altar here. And I know that the the marriage was consummated, but like, you know, there's a lot of question and, and circular, you know, like there's a lot of cloud over the Michigan football program right now. I know they're the national champions and that sounds ridiculous, but and I don't know. I don't want to speak for Michigan fans, but I'm assuming that Michigan fans in the back of their minds probably are like, yeah, I mean, it's great what he just did, but like, come on, there's got to be a, a bad taste in the mouth, right? Yes, because generally how these stories end is the coach gets off scot-free because Correct. he left for a better job and the other programs left in disarray for Correct. Now, I mean, I'll admit a national championship helps you sleep a little bit at night and eases the pain, assuming that's not vacated at some point. But it doesn't make it any less bitter. Look, I, I know it's not of relevance to people here. But, like, I'm a Clemson fan. And Dabo Sweeney's a fine coach. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, they won two of them in five years. And now have, due to, like, taking a hard stand against NIL and whatever else, have kind of relegated themselves back into, like, the 8-9 win category, which is still very good. But I, I, it's not like I'm sitting around, like, putting in tapes again of the 2016 game. I mean, it's like, man, I want to win now. You know, like it's fun now. And Michigan fans next year, if they are suddenly eight and four and the NCAA is sniffing around and doing scholarship limitation, which who knows what will come from some of the scandals at Michigan. But and and you see Jim Harbaugh making 15 million a year. You got to be thinking to yourself, wait a minute. Right. I feel like before the Jim Harbaugh statue, though, it's got to be the Connor Stallions hologram. And it's a hologram because it's constantly changing into different outfits and getup that he had on the sidelines during this whole thing. I mean, I feel Very like that, that, that's what has Central to be Central Michigan coach right. for one, yeah. holding up different signs, yes. everybody getting confused as to why there's a Pacers logo on the sidelines of a game. Although that might have been Texas that was doing that. That was Texas doing that. But same thing. Michigan figured out what it meant. Um, all right. Talking about statues. There's a guy that plays here locally that a guy on this radio station used to constantly say needed to have a statue. And it turns out one of the most polarizing players in professional basketball who himself is an all-star actually might agree. The controversial sports figure with a out-of-left-field commentary about a player of your favorite team. 
and we will put that entire jigsaw puzzle together for you and let you hear about it next. Already halfway through hour number one here on a very foggy Thursday. Did you go? Did you drive last night, like out and about? Once it got dark, no. Unbelievable! I did. It was very eerie. It is right. Like it literally felt like when you are. I mean, duh, right? But like when you go into a haunted house and they have the like fog smoke machines, mm. that's literally what it looked like. I'm like, holy cow, man! Graveyard esque. What's that? Graveyard esque. That's exactly correct. It was like literally. I was looking for Michael Jackson walking down the street, like with or, or shuffling with a bunch of zombies behind him. You keep checking your rear view. <laughs> I did, man. Oh, let me tell you, like. You can't check the rear view. You got to look straight ahead just to find out how f- close things are. I mean, literally, it's, it's rough. And don't hit the high beams in the fog, just so you know. Uh, earlier today, this made some headlines. Now, I would assume that this might have actually been from last night. But Draymond Green, who is clearly one of the most polarizing players in the association, Reggie Miller once said, and I'm paraphrasing, that every team needs a little bit of crazy. And it is true that if you look at basically most most title teams had an instigator or a guy that you just kind of didn't know they were a little bit off. You know, the Lakers had... Kurt Rambis was always in there kind of throwing things around with those goggles and kind of a wild child. Our test towards the back end of like when when they win in 09-10, when they go back to back, our test would have been that for LA as well, the second go around. Well, the, yeah, more recently. Right. But if we're going chronologically. I was skipping around. Just um, no, I get it. And our test would, would be one that relates to here for Correct. sure, right? And that's that's the origin and the genesis of Reggie Miller's comment. Um you know, Rambus would be one. Doesn't really feel like... I mean, Cornbread Maxwell was an energy guy for Boston back in those days. He wasn't really crazy, but like you just kind of never knew where he was going to come from. Detroit obviously had Rodman. The Bulls had Rodman the second go-round. Mm-hmm. Um, to your point, you know, our test when he was here, and that's what Reggie Miller, I think, was talking about when he was asked about it, our test, and there's a very fine line there. There's a very fine line with players that ride that razor's edge between helping you and being a detriment. In our test case, and I can tell you, I mean, there's a whole still untapped and unread book about Ron Artest and his history with the Indiana Pacers. Our test was a throw in, essentially to the trade that when the Pacers were wanting to acquire Brad Miller, they sent Jalen Rose and Travis Best to Chicago in exchange for Ron Mercer, Kevin Ollie, Brad Miller, and Ron Artest. And the Bulls actually told Indiana of some of the challenges that at that time hadn't become public about Ron Artest that he was having and some of the, quite frankly, the help that was necessary. And Artest has been pretty open about this now. And so Indiana arranged when they acquired our test and agreed to take him on. That was kind of one of the, the real factors in that trade. And they agreed to get our test counseling for somebody from New York who our test would trust. 
and they did, and he flourished. But at the same time, and I'm not, it's not fair of me, nor am I probably qualified to get into the specifics of like, you know, just mental illness in general. But I think they knew there were some warning signs that our test was perhaps becoming a little bit more unpredictable at the time when everything really imploded with the brawl. But people forget that even before that, when the Pacers were playing in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Pistons, our test had, he had missed the team flight. I think he overslept. And then there was question whether or not he was even going to show up. And then in the game that eliminated them, he was called for a technical. And you know he kind of went, he pulled an Xavier Johnson. And it just kind of imploded. And the next year, of course, the brawl happened. And then we know the history of our test. Draymond Green for Golden State is a player very similar to that. And with Draymond Green, what Steve Kerr and the Warriors have been able to do is channel and facilitate that unpredictability within the confines of being a championship-level team and having him throw people off their game, essentially, and get in people's heads. And there are times where Draymond Green clearly has gone over the razor's edge, and it's cost his team, and he's been suspended. But he is still with that a fascinating character. And because of all of the aforementioned things that I just discussed, he is a player that you wonder if if he were to go elsewhere or was available, if he wouldn't be able to help your team. And he is a guy that the risk, even at 33 years old and 11 years in the league now, is somewhat worth the potential reward because of what he is able to do on the floor, even though it seems as though the sands of the hourglass of his career are, are going pretty quickly with each and every incident that takes place. But he was doing a, I think it was a podcast or like a video podcast and talking about the NBA in general. When somebody asked him this question about Indiana, about the Indiana Pacers, and the question simply was to paraphrase, like, what is it that you like about Indiana and a team that just got Pascal Siakam, are they now a contender in the East? And if so, is Siakam the player that could perhaps put him over the top? And who is the most important young piece in Indiana? And Draymond Green had the following to say. Benedict Mather, um, that kid, I think, has a great deal of potential. He a go-getter. He not soft at all. He 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 ain't a bully, which you ain't got it. Like, but he ain't soft. Like, you ain't bullying him. He ain't backing down. He can shoot it well enough to where if he in that gym, his shot can become good. He can handle it. He's pretty athletic. Benedict Matherin, I think, is the key to that team because I, I love his potential. I love that draft pick for the Pacers. And I think he's on a good trajectory. Um, like, it doesn't happen overnight. That's a part of the growth. That's a part of getting young guys and grooming them. But what Benedict Matherin can become will decide, ultimately, what that franchise can become. Fascinating points, and and you have to respect it. You know, I mean, clearly he knows what he's talking about in terms of the game itself. Now, Green went on to talk about the other pieces in Indiana that he feels are those that are most reliant upon Benedict Matherin, but what the actual core and nucleus and why he likes the trajectory of this franchise. Tyrese is great, right? Like, I won't say great yet because the young fella's still on, on his way, but he's a one of the better point guards in this league for sure. Um, Pascal Siakam, champion, all-NBA, all-star. Like, Miles Turner is a great rim protector, knocked the three down, athletic, will finish on Like, 
Buddy, we know Buddy's shooting it. Obviously, you don't know what happens with Buddy's free agent. Will they trade him? Will not? I mean, if if they keep him, we know Buddy can knock it down. If not, they got young fellas and they they free that cap space up. I think it's a win win there. Um, but Benedict Matherin is the key. Uh, his growth will determine ultimately how far the Indiana Pacers can take him. That is courtesy of the Draymond Green podcast, by the way, and very interesting things there. Jimmy, I was saying yesterday that it feels to me like Matherin, you, at this point, you kind of know who or what he is. And while I think he is a very talented player, it does feel, just, just my take on it, it does feel like the the direction in which he's growing like is I don't know how to word this I think he's a fabulous player and I love what Draymond Green said there and I'm not by any stretch of the imagination here to disagree with somebody who plays in the NBA or discredit I should say but I'll disagree with it a little bit only because I think Matherin's style of play isn't necessarily completely cohesive with everybody else not that he's not as a person or as a player just his style of play and that you have a better feeling as to what his ceiling is than you do other guys. But nonetheless, that's pretty encouraging stuff from a guy that if you can set aside all of kind of the, you know, the the polarizing antics of him, you got to like what he had to say there. I don't know how long this list is for me, but I completely agree with everything that Draymond Green said and it's what I've been talking about the last couple of weeks whenever we'd refer to the Pacers and where Benedict Matherin is and is it time to, you know, press the eject button and move on and try to build around what you already have with Miles Turner and Pascal Siakam and Tyrese Halliburton and company with Benedict Matherin taking aside where he was drafted, which matters a ton in terms of what this franchise is going to be able to do realistically without having to trade up, without having to sacrifice assets. Realistically, we know it's well-documented. They do not pick that high in the draft. It does not happen. They don't tank. They're not a franchise that tanks. They're almost always competitive. They're always in the mix. The biggest knock the last decade has been they're always in the mix enough to make an ECF, Eastern Conference Finals, never really in the mix to make it to the finals because of how consistent they usually are as a franchise. That's a pick you cannot afford to have missed on based on how fickle NBA drafts can be. That's just the draft side of it. For him as a player, he's not a finished product in my mind. This is still halfway through, not even, his second season in the NBA, halfway through the direction underneath Rick Carlisle, and so often throughout time, especially with this organization, you see a massive leap forward in year three. Maybe the argument is his value will never be higher than it is right now, which I guess that's a fair point, but with you saw it with Obi Toppin, it might not be the same return. If they're wrong on Matherin, and they give him a year three chance, and it's not working by next year's deadline, you'll still get some type of return for him. I'm just putting that as a safety net for those that doubt him. I want to see what a third year looks like for him. I don't think he's a finished product. I do believe he can improve with his outside shooting. He needs to get more confidence in catch-and-shoot situations. I think he can improve as a defender, and I think he can be viewed above Siakam one day as the clear running mate and the clear number two to, to Tyrese Halliburton in whatever this push is for the Pacers. Okay, this is... I, I Again... I think he's a wonderful player, 
and I have I would love for him to blossom here. Your better option, your better scenario if you're the Indiana Pacers is for Benedict Matherin to be a guy that indeed continues on the same trajectory and does so as an Indiana Pacer. Because if not, if you were to see him as a piece and a tantalizing piece to bring in another player here, you're hurting your cap because you'd be trading him yeah. away for a veteran that's making more money. Fear is the wrong word. Hesitation, perhaps a better word. And by the way, I agree with Greg Poley on this. It is amazing that Draymond Green had that kind of intimate knowledge of Indiana, including the contractual situations of Buddy Heald. Now, I mean, that's not not like you can't find that anywhere. I mean, hell, we talk about it all the time here. I don't know that Draymond Green, maybe he's a member of the company. I, I don't know. But um, but it is interesting, and it shows how closely guys in the NBA, some of them followed the NBA. But in terms of Matherin, what what the Pacers need to figure out is the following. And only the Pacers and Benedict Matherin know the answer to this. And that is, if Benedict Matherin is to reach his true potential as a player, and if his skill set is to truly blossom and grow to the point that we expect it to be able to grow towards, is it possible that that happens for him as a third option on a team or for him to properly flourish does he need to be the dog that is getting the first plate and there's nothing wrong with that there are certain players that that's just how it is there is a you know Derek McKee was a fabulous 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 underrated pacer one of the most underappreciated, underrated players of all time. If you see Derek McKee around town, and he's around town, he's at games all the time, you should walk up to him and say, you know, you are one of the most underappreciated players in the history of this franchise, and I just want to thank you for being a guy that had no problem guarding Michael Jordan, no problem guarding whoever the best player was on the other team throughout their the, the Pacers playoff runs, no problem making an extra pass in a half-court possession when you might have had an open lane because it was a better look or a higher percentage shot and no problem taking shots as the shot clock was winding down and the ball rotated to you out of rhythm and hitting big shots and being totally quiet, nose to the grind, doing your job. Fabulous. And every great team needs a guy like that. And maybe that is Benedict Matherin. Maybe that is. But at some point in Derek McKee's career, it was determined that he was a guy that could flourish as a player in that role and didn't need to be the guy like he'd been at Alabama and like it was probably expected it was going to be for him in Seattle. And and you have to determine that exact thing because Benedict Matherin, what we do know with the Indiana Pacers is that Benedict Matherin, as talented as he is, in the next three to five years, assuming that Siakam resigns here, will never be higher than the third player. And and he might be the best third player in the league. But does knowing that ceiling limit his growth, or is he a beanstalk that has to crash through the glass ceiling? That That's the question that only the Pacers and Benedict Matherin know the answer to. Tony East, by the way, going to join us at 1 o'clock. What's the name, the name Mike Albee mean to you folks out there? I can tell you what it means to me. Uh, when I was 
in high school, one of our favorite activities, man, I mentioned this the other day, my buddies and I would love to go up to Woodland Bowl and Royal Pin Bowling and rent a couple of lanes and get a pizza and just sit there and bowl. I, you had to be careful with the pizza because if the grease gets too much on your fingers, it, then it becomes difficult. But they always had Mike Albee memorabilia and recognition in there because he was a great bowler. And then actually I uh, moved to St. Louis and the Weber family, huge in St. Louis. Who's the man? Who do you think you are? Right. I am. Yeah, who do you think you are? I am. That's right. One of the great clips of all time. Um, I love bowling. Love everything about it. And we've got an opportunity for you folks to enjoy not only to participate as a bowler, but also to watch some of the best to do it. Because upcoming, it's going to be the U.S. Open, the PBA U.S. Open at Royal Penn Woodland up on the north side. That's at 96th and Keystone, by the way. Passes for, we've got passes for two for the entire week. That's January 27th, upcoming through February 4th. So all of next week and a two-hour bowling pass for you to be able to go bowling and enjoy trying to get yourself a spare. What what do you bowl on average, Jimmy Cook? Like a 112. That's a very specific number. I was trying to go back in the memory banks, but I'd say probably about that. Do you ever have that one day where you're just in the zone? Yeah, but in the zone for me is, oh, man, do you see those four spares in a no, row? for sure. That I, I get it. By I the way, it. you could use the grease instead of it being a hindrance. Maybe it adds a little extra spin. A I little, could see that. Curve if you, on the if ball. you're a little curve guy, yeah, that's cool. I um, We actually had, at Woodland Bowl, we did an event here as a station, oh, I don't know, about two years ago, and I was like, it was right after I'd started here. Uh, Mindy Winkler, our coworker, uh, she's one of those, like, she's a ringer. She's a ringer. Brings her own ball. Ooh. Brings her own shoes, the whole deal, right? Very good. Cosmic bowling, by the way. An That's, awesome experience. In that terms is of cool. Bowling. That is definitely they cool. Do, they do that at Royal Pen. Um, yeah, where like it's it's a whole. The ball like, like they it's like light bringing up. the nightclub to the bowling, exactly. right? That's yes. certainly our generation because they play our kind of music. Like, That's, exactly. right. <laughs> That's right. That's um, right. I was just in a zone one day, man. I was like George Costanza on the Frogger machine, the perfect mix of Mountain Dew and pizza grease on my hand. And I, I was close to a 200, but I've never gotten anything. I mean, I've never never gone beyond that. But we have passes to give away. Now, Eddie, how are we going to do this? We're doing trivia again like we did uh, the other day. Oh, we'll do trivia. That's cool. Should we bring somebody on? Yeah, Scott or Dennis. What would you like? Uh, we'll go with Dennis the Menace. All right. Dennis, what's up? Hey, what's happening? Not a lot, Dennis. How are you today? Good. Yourself? I can't complain, man. You know what? I mean, Dennis, what line of work are you in? I actually drive a dump truck for a living. Oh, that is awesome. Are you in it right now? I am in it right now. Can you give us one of the horn blasts? I can. These people on 465 might not like it, but here we go. All right, here we go. Yes, I love that. All right. Now, the dump truck, you're hauling around what, Dennis? Aggregate for Shelby Materials. Hey. Oh, my man. How about that? My man, Dennis. Shelby Materials, of course, making it possible for us to talk to Matt Taylor. You tell right the folks, on. we love it. Love it. Will do. All right, so Dennis, um, that actually, you know what, here's the thing, Dennis. Normally, we have a trivia question about the show to prove that one listens to the program, but you just Correct. did it for us. I mean, you, Shelby Materials, of course, is the, the leader, the aggregate leader that makes it possible for us to talk to Matt Taylor during the course of the cold season, and you were clearly aware of that fact. That plus the horn, you are we're running Dennis, we're not even giving you a trivia question. How's that? You automatically win. Great, man. Sounds like a winner. Dennis, what just out of curiosity, are you a native to central Indiana? I am. 
Uh, we'll play 64 years. 64 year old. Okay, Dennis. And now, Dennis, if you don't mind me asking, your high school mascot was what? Tigers, uh, you know, Crusaders, Trojans. You were what? The Irish. The Irish. Okay. And and Dennis, you grew up then on the northeast side of Indianapolis, or did you drive across town? Even though they don't recruit it there. I did not. I lived on the south side. So when I went to Cathedral, it was at 14th and Meridian. Oh yeah, yeah. That's right. And then the Ladywood was what? Um, Ladywood is where the car, where Cathedral is now, correct? Correct. Okay. All right. Well, so Dennis, you graduated from what year as a member of the Fighting Irish? 1977. 1977, man. Just before you were just before uh, Hicks and Barlow, then, right? They would have been probably in eighth grade when you were there. Yes, sir. All right. Well, Dennis, Dennis the Menace, man, you are on your way. We appreciate it, and tell everybody over at Shelby we said hello as well. Will do. I'm heading there right now. Thank you very you much. You tell them. You tell them we appreciate it. We look forward to working with them again next year. How got, about that? I know. We got another pair to give away later, so all we right. can do this all over again, maybe with trivia this time. All right. Tony East going to join us next. Eddie, you had to do this to me, didn't you? I did. Do you know the significance of this song to me? Nope. When I was a freshman at the University of Kansas, I was a member of a fraternity, and we had what's called walkout where you as a pledge class leave in protest of the way that you've been treated. It's orchestrated. You go to another campus for the weekend. We went to the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, where every single guy in Fayetteville, Arkansas, was uh, foot eight and 210 pounds. And then we came back, and when you come back from walkout, you then have to go through like kind of the final or the, the biggest weekend of hazing, if you will. And we were locked into our sleeping dorm where – like a skunk had been turned loose and they had like, you know, there's trash everywhere or whatever. And in the speakers, a way, way, way above in the ceiling tiles that we couldn't get to because everything had been removed from the sleeping dorms. We were locked in there for 24 straight hours and we didn't start the fire by Billy Joel was left on on repeat. So I know the song fairly well, but the PTSD from that just went away like a year ago. So you're cool. But I think I told that story once before. So I actually, I mean, I, I laugh about it now. I laughed about it then, actually. but And then I thought, what the hell did I do all that for? What a, what a waste of time. Uh, Tony East joins us now, and I'm sure thrilled to be doing so based on that transition. Uh, you, of course, read his work a number of different places, including Forbes talking about the Pacers. Uh, Tony, we'll begin with this. Um, ben Shepard looks like, and I, I know that you probably didn't have that on your bingo card to begin, but it does look like Ben Shepard is a guy that we might start seeing a little bit more of in the rotation for Rick Carlisle. You agree with that assessment? I think it's possible, certainly. Um, and the biggest reason to me is their best defensive five, he might be in it right now, right? We, we saw this on Tuesday night. They turned him to open the fourth quarter. Buddy Gill didn't have it that night. Ben Matherin wasn't making shots, so turned to a defensive guy. And that lineup with Nemhard, Shepard, Neesmith as the backcourt was everywhere. They, the Nuggets didn't reach 30 points in the quarter. They only could score late in the frame, and – you know, his energy on that end of the floor is really impressive. He talked about that improvement last night, and the shot hasn't been awesome yet for him. But if he can be one of their, their key five defenders in a lineup, I mean, you got to think about playing him. And every time he's you know played, it, it's gone at least pretty well on the road trip. His energy was infectious. And I think it was noteworthy that last night was the first time that they assigned Jarris Walker to the Mad Ants without also assigning Ben Shepard. So it sure seems like they're considering playing him in many games going forward, and he earned it. He was pretty good on Tuesday. Tony, 
Pascal Siakam starts that game against the Nuggets red hot. Looks like, okay, this is the, the player they traded for, and this is going to be a game without Tyrese Halliburton to rely on him. And then he kind of struggles the rest of the way. From your vantage point, how much of that was? It's a new player within a new offense, within a new system, trying to feel his way around what this team is and what he needs to be for them versus what Denver was able to make things difficult for him after the hot start. Yeah, I'm not even like seven for 16 isn't good, but he just in the fourth, right? Like in the second quarter, I don't, you know, he, it's not even necessarily that he was way less effective. They just like went away from him for some reason. That was really strange to me, especially in that third quarter, because that's when the Nuggets had their best quarter of the game by a mile. And I get that it's all new and interesting and they're trying to figure it out. And Carlisle got ejected. They weren't calling stuff. And, and that was all what it was, but it was just, he should be, their lead shot guy, especially with Halliburton out, like every game for sure. And they went back to him in the fourth. He took six shots in that quarter and hit some great passes. Like they missed four wide open threes in the last two minutes that he set up. But I think in terms of, yeah, he missed shots. Like that's obviously a problem. You know, he's seven for 16 to seven for 16. But the real part of, of them learning him and him learning the Pacers is a stretch like that where he plays eight minutes of a quarter and even late in the second quarter. I didn't think he got it that much where – they, they just kind of are doing their thing and don't get it to him enough. You know, he is that level of talent where, like, a lot of switches are a lot of mismatches. He's got to be the guy you go to. I get that he had Aaron Gordon on him, but I still think he's their best option a lot of the time and, and should be favored more often in a lot of matchups, and they just didn't do that enough. Tony, last time we talked to you, you uh, broke the news to us, which was, I thought, exciting, actually, that you have a 21-year-old cat who made a cameo <laughs> on the program, Pepper, and then you posted a video, Pepper, who was delightful. Uh, Pepper doing okay? Yes, I'm going to shut my door, though, now that you reminded me that she could come in here and play the <laughs> No, we like Pepper. Any... We're all about Pepper. Pepper's cool, right? <laughs> Pepper's Pepper's not allowed on the sidelines of, of baseball diamonds, but always welcome on this program, right? She, everything in her life is the biggest emergency ever. Like, you, you can't wait two seconds if, uh, if Pepper needs something. So. Yeah, well, that's good. Boo, <laughs> Boo, would be in the, Boo is the spirit animal of Pepper. I know. That's my cat. Uh, okay. <laughs> With the Pacers tonight, Joel Embiid, 76ers. That's a 7 o'clock tip at the Fieldhouse. Then 24 hours later, turn around, Phoenix is in town. So based on that, with the back-to-backs and then Memphis on Sunday, so kind of a weird stretch here of three in a row, uh, does that in any way, shape, or form affect kind of rotations and just minute logs for guys? Yeah, maybe so, especially with Tyrese Halbert not playing in those first two games against the better opponents and – you know, Dustin Dopierka, the Indy Star, was asking Rick Carlisle about this yesterday. Like, not only are they facing this schedule at this time of the season with the minutes being what they are, but, like, Rick Carlisle's got a – you know, he doesn't have Bruce Brown anymore. He doesn't have – I mean, Jordan Ward didn't play much, but he got time on the road trip, right? Like, they're tinkering a little bit of, like, what works, what doesn't. You saw that with Ben Shepard in the fourth quarter. On Tuesday, for example, you know, the, their rotation was different in the first two games with Siakam, and some of that's all been injuries, but – they're still dealing with those, right? So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how he kind of figures out what works, what doesn't, who should play with who, who shouldn't, what lineups make sense. And some of that's how do they maximize Pascal Siakam, who's a wonderful player. But some of that is how do they make their team as consistently talented as possible for 48 minutes. And so that's the kind of stuff that will be interesting in these games is they don't have Tyrese Halliburton. What do they do? Who plays a lot? Who doesn't? And how do they try to steal a win? Because, look, if they lose these five in a row – Four of them, I think everybody will understand. They just made a big trade. They haven't had Tyrese Albert, and they're playing contenders. But they lost to Portland. And I think if you lose all these games in a row, everyone's going to start to go, huh, this is uh, 
they've been not a very good team right now. So they, they need to figure something out in these games. Tony East is our guest. Find all things Pacers with his coverage on Locked On, Pacers, Forbes, and others. Tony, Ben Matherin's 21 years old. He's in his second season in the NBA. Still has plenty of time in regards to the team control and all that good stuff. When you look at players throughout the league, when you look at his profile, how much more growth is there still to be had in his game and in his career as a player in the association? Yeah, really interesting timing for this question because he is certainly right now in the worst stretch of his season. It's not even close, right? Like they win that Portland game last last Friday. If he if he makes any shots, he was over eight. It was the only game all season he did not make a single shot, and he followed it up in Phoenix in a game that the Pacers were ahead in the last three minutes, but lost going one for eight, and then they were ahead against Denver on Tuesday late in that game, and they couldn't get it done, and he was three for eight, right? Like he has had a really down stretch. Playing and at least Tuesday he he had three assists and he showed some of the stuff that he's been getting better at this season. But currently at this moment he's in his downstretch scoring. But I think in general the thing about him that still is the most important thing to me and you can see this like game to game how effective it is is how quickly he does what he wants to do when he catches the ball right and this seems so so simple almost, but like his strength almost is that he can, he can isolate and size up anybody and, and do something productive. But a lot of times that stop and catch and turn and assess what's going on, slows stuff down for the Pacers or just doesn't necessarily lead to the right pace of play for the team. And I think that is what he's been working on at his best. He just really quick, he makes a decision, puts it on the floor or really quick gets the shot up or whatever he does. But that doesn't happen all the time. And you really saw it Tuesday to me where yeah, he had an okay stat line, but he was catching and thinking for a second. And that's maybe that's part of the team reshaping a new identity right now, but that's not what they need him to do. They need him to continue to make those quick decisions and play within the flow of the team. And I, I think he is still probably their highest potential young guy on the team. You've seen some games where the passing looks way better. You've seen 13 rebound games, right? Like he, he clearly is getting a little bit better at the little stuff. You know, even you know, five, he had an eight assist game this season. Like, I never would have thought that was even possible for him last year. So, like, the growth is coming, but it's really been – and this people talk about this all the time, that growth isn't linear for young players. It's really been a roller coaster where, for like, there'll be a week where he looks awesome and everything's clicking for him. He's, he, he, like, he crushed the Bucks earlier this month over and over again and can just get to his spots. And then there's a week like this week where he's kind of, you know, falling back a little bit and not playing exactly how they want. So, I think he's certainly been better, especially because they need him to be good at on a team with Tyrese Halberton over the course of the season, but recently, certainly, uh, probably his worst week of the year, and he's got to get a little bit better. Tony, the jerseys have been released, and by that I mean the the look of the jerseys for the All-Star game that's going to be taking place at Gamebridge Fieldhouse. Uh, some of the auxiliary shirts or the, the side shirts, if you will, have pinstripes as kind of a, a tip of the cap to the Pacers uniforms. Ooh. But the, the jerseys do not – they are color-coded. So the East – all-Stars wear one color, the West wear the other color, and they simply say All-Star on them. They do not say East and West. How big a buzzkill is that for you? Because how much were you excited and anticipating buying a jersey that said East and having it framed in the house next to your pictures of Pepper? Um, I actually really – I I did not realize these got put out until you just said this, so I just looked them up. I like the jerseys. I am bummed now, though. You ruined them for me very quickly. <laughs> this was an exciting moment for about three seconds. Uh, yeah, I would have. I would have done that. I don't have. Do they ever have put East and West on them since like 2010? It's been forever, right? Yeah. Well, 2010 to me was like two weeks ago, but yeah, I mean, it's probably been a while, right? 
I mean, the whole thing has gone away. You know, then it turned into like the because you have the two players picking the teams, and you know, it, it changes, right? Obviously, so yeah. actually now I guess it's not even East and West, right? It's team that they still do it that way, right? They they divvy the teams up regardless this, this of I should say. This year it's still it's back to East West. Okay, captain drawings or anything, but. I mean, I think even before they went to the captain drawings, they were just putting up blue and red All Star jerseys, and just you—you you guys figure it out. You know it. You—you you know who's on the Lakers. That's the West team. Figure it out from there, right? That's kind of I feel like been their strategy. I like these though. These are nice. Tony, have you ever uh, just out of curiosity, Tony East, our guest, and I'm assuming the answer to this is no, because oftentimes when we are on, it's when you would be at Pacers practices, shootarounds, etc. But are you familiar with this radio program? Have you ever heard this program aside from the occasional? Um, cameo that you make on it? Uh, occasionally. Okay. I'm not an often uh, consumer, but occasionally. Okay, well, we appreciate that. Uh, okay, so we have a, a guy that every once in a while stops by the studio. Um, I actually rescued him a few years ago from a, a rusty can of PBR. His name's Robin the Genie. He has a question for you. Are you willing to uh, take a question from Robin the Genie here on the program? I am. I okay, here we go. Here we go. Uh, thank you, Tony. It is my pleasure. We wish you'd listen more often to the program, but here is my question for you, Tony East. As a genie, I have the capability of giving you millions of dollars, but you must write down for me the names of any players that you feel will not be Indiana Pacers after oh. the trade deadline. Oh. For each player you have correct, I will give you $1 million, but for any that are incorrect, you will be penalized. Do you have any submission for me? Well, I, I would like to opine on the answer, but given that I will lose a million dollars if I'm wrong, I would like to just submit a blank piece of paper so I do not have any financial burden from this question. He's not going to pay you either way, so it's really, it's really a, a, a risk-free game well, for all I involved. Ap- while I appreciate the sentiment and thought, it is my program and my rules. All right, so for Robin, who is a stickler for this, Tony, you're, if, you had to get, if you had to write down some names, what would be your best opportunity or odds here? Or do, would you simply say, look, man, it's not going to happen no matter how much you, you challenge me? Yeah, I think, well, the names to start with are anybody on an expiring contract, right? And that's just NBA reality, right? And the Pacers may say that, hey, we've been good enough that we don't have to think that way. But, you know, they're seventh in the East right now. They've lost three in a row. Like, if you're a team that isn't a lock to win around or whatever, reach whatever playoff goal, like, you have to think about the future of your players on expiring contracts. And the for sure expiring guys are Buddy Heald and Obi Toppin. Uh, Toppin's restricted, so they could keep him. But they at least they have to think about the future of those two guys because you know maybe they don't, maybe they won't be back, or maybe something will happen with them in the summer that's you know just different, and it's it's just not the same. And and if you can get value for them now, that helps your team long term. Maybe that makes sense for the Pacers. That said, though. You know, if they're if they think they are postseason good, like Buddy Hield is valuable to them. Obi Toppin's been a good player for them. Perhaps they just say, you know what, let's let's ride it out for the experience. Let's make the postseason, figure it out from there. Uh, so those are the two guys that I'll at least keep an eye on. Buddy Hield's salary slot is now really important for them since they're an over the cap team going forward. Um, so if they do decide to move him, getting someone back who makes you know similar money is important. Toppin is restricted free agent, so they can keep him. In the summer, either way, um, he's in an interesting spot, too, because the addition of Siakam with Jalen Smith playing so well this season, like the, the reserve front court in general is really going to be really interesting once they're finally fully healthy. They haven't had everybody for a game yet since the trade. So 
Uh, those are the two names I'd keep an eye on. But in general, you know, Isaiah Jackson, Toppin, Jalen Smith, like at least you have to think about your long-term reserve front court because you have Siakam on the team now. And it sure seems like uh, Jairus Walker is going to be someone they would eventually like to give some of those minutes to. They kept him for a reason. He's been playing well of late. So, uh, Buddy Heald, because of his contract situation, the reserve front court, I think that's the guys that I would, if I had to slide a piece of paper to you, Mr. Genie, uh, be the names that are on it. So, Tony, my question about Buddy Heald would be the following. And you tell me, Tony East, if you agree with this. I, I, you know, if you put, if Robin the Genie <laughs> ran into Kevin Pritchard and had the ability, as genies probably do, to put truth serum in him, I thought I think what we would find out is that the Pacers, while conventional wisdom says that Buddy Heald is the guy that would be on the trade block, that deep down at their core and in their heart, they don't want to trade him. Oh yeah, I a hundred percent they said I mean, they said that obviously they're gonna say that in a press conference setting, right? But I think that if you just like me or an actions are louder than words kind of guy like they wanted to extend his contract, right? Like that at the at the core of what this discussion is. The reason that he was talked about as a trade guy last summer is because they had extension discussions that fell apart. That they were willing to have extension discussions at all suggests they they wanted Buddy Hill's contract to be longer on their team, right? And so not only did they say no, we, we want Buddy Heald on our team. We want to bring him into camp. We want to play for us this year. But they they tried to make that a longer-term situation. And now they're out of cap space, so their, their extension offers can't look – you know, they can't do the renegotiation stuff like they did with Miles Turner's la- last year. But they still can extend him up until free agency if they agree to something that makes sense. And I, I don't know what, they, what they're thinking there, what Buddy Heald's thinking there, what his goals are. But, you know, it's, I agree with you that – all the signs point to that they would like to keep him on their team and have him be a part of what they're doing. But again, after February 8th, they lose control over the situation. Now Buddy Heald has all the power to sign whatever with them or elsewhere. They, they have to think of that if, if there is value that makes sense, even though I agree with you that in their dream world, they would have him on the roster. Okay, Jalen Smith this year made just over $5 million. Okay. Yes. He has a player option. For those that are unfamiliar, and maybe we should – give a quick tutorial unrestricted free agent means you're free to go wherever you want restricted free agent means that if you are given an offer by another team your team has the right to try to match that player option means the player himself can choose whether or not to stay with his team or exercise free agency he has a player option for next year if he says you know what i'm good then he's going to make 5.4 million dollars the question tony east is this has Jalen Smith played his way into a market that another team would pay him more than that next year, thus necessitating for him to exercise that option? I would say probably more than $5.4 million. You know, last summer we saw, like, I mean, this was a ridiculous. This was, like, just to trade this contract for the Rockets, right? But, like, Josh Landale got $8 million a year. And as Reed, who is better than Jalen Smith, to be clear, got a little under 13 in his first year of his deal. Uh, so I would say that he's more than a $5.4 million player. But backup center is just a funky market, right? Like it's hard to figure out where the investment would come from. Maybe a young team that has some space or has some exceptions. But it's just not a spot that any team goes into free agency prioritizing, even if he is good and only 24, and, you know, if he can shoot like this and defend and rebound, like, 
maybe the Pacers would want him back, and they'll have his bird rights so they could keep him too. But I think he probably merits at least a small raise, certainly. The interesting thing about this is the, the new CBA rules are you can negotiate with your own players in free agency one day after the finals. You don't have to wait till June 30th, uh, like with external players. Well, Jalen Smith's player option date is the 29th, which is going to be after the draft and several days after the finals are over. So in theory, if he's considering opting out, the Pacers could could figure out what that looks like or figure out what the deal needs to be ahead of time. And you'll get a pretty good sense of what Smith thinks he can get either from the Pacers or another team, you know, in, in maybe before free agency even happens. But I think he probably has earned uh, a little bit of a raise. I mean, the, he's lo- he only is locked into his current salary figures because the Suns declined his option years ago. So I think having the chance to finally get a little bump may be something he's interested in, even though backup center is just so finicky that you never really know. Tony East is our guest, covers the Pacers, Locked On Pacers, Forbes, and other locales. Tony, by the way, just a fair warning, spoke with Robin the Genie earlier. When we get off the phone, do me a favor, whoever your phone carrier is, you're going to want to look up your billing cycle for any collect calls that may have been inadvertently accepted there. It's, he's, yeah. he's, he's tricky. Robin's shifty, right? He is. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. He's got that. to pay off those million-dollar payouts he somehow, he Jimmy. Does. Come on. He's got to find one way. I respect the, I respect the hustle. I respect the hustle. I, re- I tried to game his rules, so hopefully I hey, got around hey, that. I, I, I respect your hustle as well. <laughs> Pascal Siakam, the Toronto version of him the last couple of years, the biggest mark against him has been offensive efficiency has plummeted year over year since his days with Kawhi. I contend that Tyrese Halliburton is the best playmaker to accentuate and bring him back to offensive efficiency than anything that's been there in Toronto since. Tyrese is off the board during this stretch, so my question is, when you look at Pascal Siakam, let's just use this season in fairness. Compared to what he had in Toronto, are the Pacers better equipped or better built as a unit, even without Tyrese Halliburton, for him still to be a better player and perform at a higher level than he did in Toronto. Yeah, definitely. And whew, that's an interesting uh, opinion about his efficiency because, yes, it dipped the year immediately following the title, but it's gone up every year since that. <laughs> so, it, yes, that was obviously a blip year at his crazy efficiency in 2018-19, but it steadily climbed. It's got, his true shooting percentage has gone up literally every year since 2019-20 until now. And yes, now he is in a system that will let him and encourage him to take shots that he can make. And he's got the best setup man who's going to draw more attention than any of his teammates that he's had in the last three or four years. And I think he overlapped with Lowry for one of those, but that was that sad Tampa Bay Raptors COVID season that was just depressing uh, in every way. I think something else that's going to be interesting is like Nick Nurse ran his his starters a ton of minutes, like 38 a game. For years, I wonder what even just like four or five fewer minutes per game could do for him from an energy and effectiveness perspective. And maybe the Pacers can't get away with that and they need him to play as much as possible. But, I mean, I I think that that could be a boon for him too. So, obviously, I think if you just stare at his two- and three-point shooting percentages and say, well, they haven't been at that level since having a star teammate, yeah, you'd think Tyrese Halliburton could help him get back to those numbers. But I think he's gotten more refined as a guy who can – find his shots and, and score, obviously, since then, and it's figured out what he can do without just going through the I'm really fast, I can spin around you move. And I think his shot is still 35%-ish is what I'm going to expect with the Pacers. So I think having Tyrese Halliburton will help him uh, have those percentages be higher. And I think in general, what you've already seen from him is he can get to his spot and on this Pacers team that has shooting, has 
a perfect front court match for him. Yeah, his efficiency is going to be solid. You know, in my perfect world, the way my brain works, I'd like to see Nick Nurse on the same staff as Doc Rivers. That that would only make sense, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, yes, it would. Yes, it would. They they'd be, they'd be the healthiest team in the league, right? <laughs> well, currently, the team Doc Rivers is is coaching. Uh, has a very unhealthy situation leading into that that hire, so uh, they could use a nurse. Hey, how about that, man? Uh, like, Whew. Doc Rivers just came in and said, you know what, I'm just going to, like, I'm a consultant here, so it, I'm going to play both sides of the fence. That, that's what it looks like to me, right? I agree. Yeah, it's really crazy that that happens the way it did. And I, it, it's interesting, like, I get the Bucks being like, yeah, we want Doc Rivers to help consult this new coach, but, like, if you were consider, <laughs> they, they won this week twice. They beat, I mean, it was the Pistons, but they won twice this week and then fired him. So, like, clearly this has been brewing for a while, you know, and, and no, nothing good came out of, you know, you didn't hear a lot of good stuff coming out of Milwaukee, but, like, a 30-13 and 13 team off of wins doing like, that had to be something, something wild had to be happening in Milwaukee. That's a crazy one. I'm telling you, like, I'm going to start looking over my shoulder if I find out that Derek Schultz has been hired as a <laughs> consultant to this program, right? <laughs> the story of my life. Tony, what else? Uh, what do you got working here on coverage that we'll be looking for from you in due time? Well, all star starters will be announced tonight. So either Tyrese Halliburton will be one, and that will not be a surprise, or he won't be one, and that will be a surprise. Uh, and we can talk about that and cover uh, that. And if he is or isn't deserving of that honor, Pascal Siakam had his first practice with the Pacers yesterday. So a lot more learned about him and what that practice value can be for him. So. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff coming on the court and, of course, the trade deadline's in two weeks. So plenty to come on this Pacers team in the next couple weeks. Tony, before we let you get out of here, do you envision the contract incentives of All-NBA and otherwise tied to Tyrese Halliburton factoring in to any of his health management over the next couple of weeks in terms of where they're mapping things out? Because he has, like, what, four to play with, I think, in terms of the game limit that the NBA requires to be eligible for that? Yeah, he can miss. I, I'll, I'll be curious about a couple things with that. Like, you know, he played in the in-season tournament finals. Like, do they do they count that? Do they give him grace for – there's a lot of, like, little ways around exactly 65. I need to read the rules again. But now he's at, I believe, nine games missed in season 10. So he's got seven more. Uh, but he's going to miss two more this week. So I think five. I'd have to – I'm not doing very quick or good math right now, but – uh, yeah, I mean, it's a huge incentive for him. Like he, it, It's, it's going to be interesting how they kind of work together on this because Tyrese Halberton, for both basketball reasons, playing with Siakam, getting the team back on track, should want to play as soon as possible, right? We saw him at practice shooting some threes yesterday, moving around. Um, and the Pacers probably want him to be as healthy as possible, but also would like to win. So the push and pull of all those dynamics is going to be fascinating to me. I mean, look, if the cap goes up as much as it can, I mean, Tyrese Halliburton has 54 million reasons to try to play 65 games this season, so of course he will. And I, quite frankly, I'm a get-your-money guy. I think he should try, uh, as long as it doesn't have any long-term impacts. But, I mean, I don't want to speak for anybody, but it sort of seems like coming back in Portland might have been too soon, so we'll see what they decide to do going forward. Tony East, the guest, Pepper the Cat, and the Pacers and Sixers <laughs> tonight. Tony, we appreciate it as always. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, Tony East on the program. Coming up uh, just a little bit, Mike DeCourcy going to join us top of the hour. Other side, um, some big news, sad news, truthfully, regarding an absolute Indianapolis iconic institution. And one of my favorite spots that I know is the favorite spot for many of you and in the time might be here for a bunch of us to rally together.
I'll explain next. We should probably, Eddie, have some sort of a jingle. I think you brought this up. I guess there are two areas that I'm, I can be a little bit guilty. One is like my random brain droppings where I'm just like, you know, I thought about something last night at two in the morning, you know. Brain droppings. That's an interesting phrase of how people can take that. George Carlin used to call his, I believe, his observations brain drop. You can call it whatever you'd like. But um, the other one is like, um, I don't want to say Uncle Jake, I, although I am an uncle. I, You know, I'm not a father, but I'm an uncle. So I guess story time with Uncle Jake. But. If I could, like two minutes for a quick story about a place that is iconic in Indianapolis. And I love Indianapolis history. I think most people know that I love Indianapolis history. And it's funny how things work. But I, growing up in Indianapolis, was a huge reader and and just a, a fan of Kurt Vonnegut. I read Kurt Vonnegut for the first time when I read Slaughterhouse-Five in late high school. And that opened the floodgates where I then read... Breakfast of Champions, Cat's Cradle, you know, the Bluebeard, I mean, all the way through. I read everything that he wrote. And I always was fascinated and tremendously proud of the fact that he was a graduate of Shortridge High School in Indianapolis. And in that capacity, I became familiar with a guy who was 10 years behind Kurt Vonnegut, Dan Wakefield, who wrote Going All the Way, a bestseller in 1971. I believe it was released. It became the first uh, major film of Ben Affleck's career later. And Dan Wakefield, also from Shortridge, 10 years behind Vonnegut. And in the book Going All the Way, he prominently mentions the Red Key Tavern. And the Red Key Tavern is one of the most cool and iconic and true-to-itself places in Indianapolis. I think most people are familiar with it. It's on North College. I always forget if it's 52nd and 54th in college, but it's right there on North College. And the Red Key has gone through, you know, it's got a long history, but it was purchased by Russ Settles in 1951. And Russ was an absolute legend. They have the the rules of the Red Key. You can't play the jukebox during Jeopardy. You can't move your chair from one to the next. You have to hang your coat up, not hanging on the back, no profanity, all, all kinds of rules of Russ. And one of the most iconic things he would do is he had a trick he could do with a silver dollar where you would, he would put a paper dollar on top of it, flip the coin with a thumbtack, and it would tack the dollar bill to the ceiling. Then at the end of the year, all of those dollar bills would be given to children's charities, I think Riley Hospital. And there were always dollars and then paper model airplanes hanging from the Red Key. It was used in the filming of Going All the Way, the movie, the Red Key was. And I was very fortunate a couple of years ago to befriend Dan Wakefield when he moved back to Indianapolis after spending a long time in Miami. And Dan and I became fast friends watching Miami Heat games together and talking about notably literature, but also his beloved Miami Miami Heat. And oftentimes Dan would ask me, and Dan is still living, by the way, but uh, he would ask me to take him to the Red Key and have lunch there. So we would go to the Red Key. Wally Levitt, who hired me for the IMS Radio Network, also has met me at the Red Key for lunch many, many times. And when we would go, we would always have to get Dolly's Chili. Dolly is Dolly Settle, whose husband is Jim Settle, the son of Russ, and this business that has been a family-owned business now for over 70 years. Dolly, unfortunately, passed away yesterday. She was diagnosed with it, actually had some health issues and complications that just started a few weeks ago, and Jim himself is also hospitalized. And so 
those two basically run the bar and the kitchen, Jim and Dolly, Jim being the son of Russ. I found out about all of this on a side note, which I did not realize, but uh, Dolly is actually the aunt to several of my cousins on the on their other side of the family. So admittedly, there is a familial connection for me to the Settle family, but I think, and I did not know Dolly well other than going in with Dan or with Wally and other people and having her make me a grilled cheese or um, you know, her chili, whatever it might be, or Jim, either one, or we're, we're always there. The red key is, is trying to navigate through just the staffing of being able to get somebody. You can't replicate Dolly's chili. You just can't. But, um, but also Jim behind the bar between regulars that have some experience in bartending. I have a feeling that I will be getting together with my cousin Angie to, to talk about a lot of this and things that we can do to help them out. But they are going to be closed for the next couple of days while the Red Key, you know, obviously gets affairs in order for a proper service for Dolly and things like that. But if you're thinking about a place to have a cold PBR or a Diet Coke or any whatever your beverage of choice may be and a fabulous grilled cheese or chili or, of course, their famous burgers, then starting next week or so, I would simply ask that you keep the red key in mind because it is one of those establishments in Indianapolis that is truly part of our fabric and one of those places that is the reminder of the great Indianapolis of yesteryear as well when you go into it. And more than life itself, I want to be able to see that great tradition continue, number one, but also number two, just to help out a family-owned business as the family itself, which has become family for so many people, uh, hits a tough time. And that's what makes this city great is the way people rally together. So they'll be closed for a few days, but if you could consider stopping in and, and giving them a little bit of business here uh, on the other side, or simply keep Jim and the family itself in your thoughts. I don't know if either one of you guys have ever been to the Red Key, but it's it, it's a pretty awesome place. Pretty awesome. Like you walk in, you ever have places, Jimmy, you walk into, well, it doesn't have to be a bar, restaurant, you mentioned duck pen bowling, places you walk in and you just, it's just cool because you can feel like the history of it. Yes. Most certainly. Uh, Duckpin Bowling, Fountain Square, Shapiro's here locally. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of places like that where you automatically cross the threshold. St. Elmo's comes to mind, too. You cross the threshold and the history and the just authenticity of it happens when you travel as well. If you're walking around, we have them here in Indiana, but Chicago, New York, or if you go abroad, just old world cities where you can kind of feel totally. the history right there. Totally. It's the best, yeah. right? It just mm-hmm. reminds you of, you know, when you go in the Red Key, when you walk in, you know, it's kind of dimly lit, which is kind of cool. When you walk in, you can just envision like like a 1920s carriage in the rain outside and a guy taking off his derby when he walks in. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just has that feel to it, right? Yep. Like, you know, some guy in the back smoking a cigar, playing the piano type deal, which is just, you know, places like that, just you don't see them as much anymore. And and they, they have character. That's the best way to say it. it. Just has character, right? Just absolutely has character. Mike DeCourcy, by the way, going to join us coming up in just a couple of minutes. We'll talk uh, a lot of, about, uh, obviously, college round ball as well. Pacers in action tonight. You just heard us talking about it with Tony East against the Philadelphia 76ers and Joel Embiid. I'm a Miles Turner guy. I'm with JMV on that. I know JMV has always been a supporter of Miles Turner, but the reality is, Jimmy, uh, this is a player coming in tonight, coming off a 70-point performance earlier this week that has given Miles Turner fits. But that doesn't make Miles Turner 
by any stretch of the imagination, unique in the NBA. Lots of people have fits with yeah, Joel Embiid. It's, it's not, and it gets interpreted that way. It's not a full shot on Miles Turner. It's just the reality of A, the player Joel Embiid is. And secondly, sometimes for players in the NBA, there are just boogeymen like that. Or whenever you have a matchup against player A, player B, not necessarily always struggles, but always comes out looking worse for wear because of what player A does. Sometimes matchups just aren't it for you. It's a three-headed monster out there in Philadelphia at times this season with Embiid, with Tyrese Maxey, with Tobias Harris. All three of those guys averaging double figures, 17 for Harris, 25 for Maxey, 36 a game for Joel Embiid. And on top of that, Jake, I had lost this in all of the other stuff going on, the NFL playoffs, uh, the Pacers on a nightly basis, the NBA never having a day without drama, 21 consecutive 30-point games for Joel Embiid dating back to November 17th. That's a franchise best for the 76ers. So when I said earlier in the day, we opened the show, that uh, he'll probably go for 30, well, I guess I should have added a guarantee to it because 21 consecutive outings, he's had at least 30 points for the 76ers. And 25 of the last 27, and I think in his last 16 games, he's averaging 40 points a game and on like 58% <laughs> field goal percentage. Getting to the line 12 times a game. All while looking like the Sinclair mascot, (laughs) right? Uh, Also, in the National Football League, Eddie. uh, Breaking news to report. One of the coaching vacancies has been filled, and I'm not talking about Jim Harbaugh and the Los Angeles Chargers, Eddie. It is the – and I would think this is one of those places that you got to take a guy that probably – is looking for his first opportunity because I don't know how good a job this is, but Carolina's been filled, right? Correct. Dave Canales, he was the offensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this past season, helped rejuvenate Baker Mayfield. He was most recently also, I believe, the quarterback's coach in Seattle the previous year, so that would be two years ago, helped revitalize Geno Smith's career, so now Carolina hoping he can do the same with Bryce Young. So let's just take a guess. He's a younger-looking guy. Kind of looks like Jimmy Garoppolo, to be honest with you. Um, and I get it. I mean, great opportunity for him. And certainly best of luck. Not like I know the guy. Not like he's listening. But you get what I'm saying. Uh, however, that's a – I tell you, Carolina's a tough job because you David don't know Temper if they have exists. the right quarterback. What's that? David Tepper exists. That, that's it. I mean, the, the ownership is terrible. The ownership is clearly tough. But you got to take an opportunity. I mean, you get a chance. you got to go with it. Now um, – Let's guess where he went to college. I'm going to guess that Dave is a quarterback at some point, right? So if you had to guess where he went to college, we will allow you, Jimmy Cook, the first guess. Please do not look it up. He went to college where? Washington State. That's a very good guess. Kind of a quarterback uh, tree, if you will. Okay. Uh, Your guess, Eddie Garrison. Arizona. Ooh, that's also a great guess. I had this weird UTEP feeling, or like one of those small (laughs) schools. Um I will go with – I'm going to stick with UTEP. Okay, here we go. Uh, he, Ooh, did you look it up here? I've not yet. No. I'm going to – okay, he was an offensive coordinator as a – he started as – how about this? How many guys right now – how many guys right now coaching in the National Football League are within 20 years removed from being an assistant high school football coach? Ooh. He was the offensive coordinator at Carson High School in California in 2005. I'm going to label it as one. He played college football at Azusa Pacific 
an NAIA program in Azusa, California. Never can we got that. can we guess their mascot? We have to guess their mascot, right? I'm going to go with the uh, I'm going to go with the Aztecs, Jimmy. The uh, Do you know where this school is located? Azusa, California. I just said okay, it. Okay, sorry. I don't know which part of California that is, though. The Seagulls. Seagulls, a great guess. Azusa. How about Pacific. this? You want a hint? You want a hint? No, you know it's it not fair. It's not fair to Jimmy. Okay. No, no, I so, don't care. I'll take it now. It's fine. Okay, give me the hint then. Give me more. What'd you say? Give me more. <laughs> Cougars. That is the Cougars. Yes, they are, in fact, the Cougars. Azusa Pacific Cougar football, baby. I, I've heard of Azusa Pacific, I think, right? Maybe, maybe just right now because they've produced an NFL head coach. But that's a tough spot. I mean, ownership there is less than desirable to say the least, right? I mean, yes. And that might be the ultimate undoing as it has been the last couple times, last couple go-arounds for Carolina. But to your point, you can't turn down a head coaching opportunity. And maybe the jury's not out yet on Bryce Young. If you can get what was received from Baker Mayfield and Tampa Bay, maybe you can still get something worth the selection of Bryce Young out there. I mean... I feel bad, to be honest with you, of all the situations, and I realize we're doing an Indianapolis Sports Talk radio show talking about the Carolina Panthers, but but of those quarterbacks that you know were in the mix for the top pick, and you know the Colts have, have maintained that if they had the number one pick, they would still take Anthony Richardson, which after seeing C.J. Stroud for a year, you're like, I don't know, really? I mean, are they being totally truthful there? That said, I feel bad for Bryce Young because – He's in a tough spot. He walked into a situation where there's not a whole lot there. I mean, the, the cover was pretty empty. His coach has already been fired. The coach that everybody knows didn't want him. An owner that does believe in him, so that's good, but an owner that just appears to be kind of a knucklehead, kind of a D-bag. It's probably the best way to say mm-hmm. it, right? Yeah. Um, And... And yet you have, I mean, if you're Bryce Young, you're, you're like, look, you know, I mean, Will Levis, who knows if he's going to be a long-term answer, but he had moments. Will, you could make the argument that this year, Will Levis had more moments than did Bryce Young. Yeah. And Will Levis's were limited, right? Obviously, Stroud, I mean, if you're Bryce Young, you're hoping that like nobody in Carolina even knows anybody in Houston and talks to them and that like no one's aware of what CJ Stroud's done. Because, because now that's you're on, always going to be the comparison. Yeah, now, now you're a legacy conversation, right? Totally. Now, now, now you are Greg Oden. I don't mean to throw strays at Greg Oden, but now you're Greg Oden, Kevin Durant. Yeah, right. No, fair. Like, like that. Ryan Leaf, the, Peyton Manning, correct. even though that was in, in, in the Manning Leaf situation, the right guy went first, right? Y- yes. I mean, look, one season does not a career make. And it's not a forecast portray, but it feels like it has 30 for 30 written all over it. What and C.J. Stroud may, may bottom out. I mean, listen, I'm old enough to remember that when Drew Bledsoe came into the league and was throwing for a million yards, and, and you know, Drew Bledsoe was a really good, strong-armed quarterback, and the play that changed the trajectory of football history, of course, was when he got hit and in the sternum had the vessel pop and then Tom Brady takes over and then Drew Bledsoe moves on. But he was a really good, Mm -hmm. solid player. But after their rookie year, people forget that Bledsoe went number one and the other one to Seattle 
that had a remarkable rookie year and people were like, oh man, which one was the better pick here? Did the Patriots misfire with Rick Meyer? And and Rick Meyer looked really good and then the bottom fell out. And there, you know, the NBA's the same way. There are guys in the NBA that looked like great players initially. And then you go through the whole the whole pattern and sequence of other franchises getting the opportunity to see what they do, read their tendencies, evaluate the film, and make adjustments. And, and you know, Stroud's about to go through that now. It doesn't look like it's going to matter because he is a – I loved his comment. He is a ball placement specialist, and he's right. If you're David Tepper, and again, regardless how you feel about him, he's a clown, but regardless how you feel about him, if you're David Tepper or an owner or franchise like that that makes the move that the Panthers made to give up first-round assets – to take the quarterback you believe. Let's ignore the fact you might be wrong and you should have taken Stroud. You're absolutely rooting for the Bears to bear, right? Like you're you're Correct. hoping that they miss on those picks that you gave them so you can at least sleep a little bit better at night, right? Because that's where the 30 for 30 evolves. Because if they're wrong on Young and the Bears wind up doing the right thing with the picks that you gave them, then it's double-edged sword of failure. Yeah. Then it's a whole different form of mockery. It's not just about Bryce Young. It's about the Carolina Panthers as an entire organization and underneath David Tepper's ownership. Uh, hey, Jake, my dad went to Azusa Pacific for a short time. That's pretty cool. We got a listener that went to Azusa Pacific, right? That's awesome. Yeah. I guess you'd rather have your dad than mom be a cougar, right? Exactly. Isn't that right? The company is wide-reaching, Jake. I think we should know this at this point. That's pretty cool. Now, Azusa, do we know, is it in the, do you think Mike DeCourcy will know, is Azusa Pacific in the, is it, which part of California is Azusa? Is it Southern? That sounds like Southern California, doesn't it? Yes. I'll, I'll bet life's good at Azusa Pacific. Think so? Third division too. I'll bet life's good there, man. You kidding me? Think it's better than whichever Cal State team is playing Hawaii next or no? <laughs> yeah, because the, the, the Cal State schools, I think, are, I'll bet you Azusa Pacific is a better academic institution than is one of the Cal State schools. Hmm. Let's see if it's it's a see it's private. Private Evangelical Research University. Now, if it's a it started in 1899. Okay, so it's been around a while, right? It's private. I bet life's good, man. Got some character about it. I mean, what, what do you think like campus, you know, you're walking around. I bet they got like a Fat burger, maybe an in and out right there on oh, campus. Man. Just walking around 75 degrees every day, light, light breeze. I mean, come on. I don't even think they have a notable alumni page. Here we go. Notable alumni. Oh, they have a, its own page. I'm going to look up, and when Mike DeCourcy joins us, he'll be thrilled to know that I'm going to lead off with who I believe to be the most famous person from Azusa Pacific University. Maybe it's the guy that just got hired as the Carolina Panthers head coach. Mike DeCourcy joins us next. All right, let's see here. I'm looking. Melinda Hale, singer, songwriter, and actress, graduate of Azusa Pacific. Are you guys familiar with Melinda Hale? No. Hale, no. Is that what you're going to say? Yep. How about Rick Elias, singer, songwriter, and actor, founding member of the Ragmuffin Band? Somebody probably is like, Jake, how do you not know that? Um, it, it's a, here we go. Dave is on there. 
offensive coordinator of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Hey. Clearly, they have not updated their their page here. I, I think that... Oh, wait a minute. Here we go. Colleen Ballinger. You guys familiar with her? I don't believe so. Star of the Netflix show Haters Back Off and YouTube Personality. There you go. That's That's your list. Where does looking at famous alumni rank on your favorite random activities to do? Oh, you number say? one. Well, you know. <laughs> in terms of on the radio, number yeah, one. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I, that and, I, look, I'm fascinated with, my name's Jake Query. I do a radio program. I'm fascinated by basically three things. Where famous people went to school, the mascot of that school, and where famous people are buried. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Like, you'd be hard-pressed to find to name a celebrity that's no longer with us that's an American where I couldn't tell you, like, some story about their resting place or have been visited or visited. And I know I, I get it. It's weird. I get it. I just find it fascinating. I've looked at some campus photos, and I think probably Cal State Long Beach still wins out. Like, I need – if I'm going to California – Long Beach State's cool. Don't get me wrong. I want I – want, Close proximity to the beach, and that is closer than our. Is Azusa, California, Azusa. not on the beach? It, it's it's a little out. It's it's uh, east of L.A. Oh, it's in East L.A. Oh, it's in the valley. You know, out there, you just say everything's in the valley. That's yeah. on the other side of the valley. Where is it? It's in the valley. Okay. Long like, Beach is pretty cool, man. Is that like the region in Chicago? Yeah. Is that, is that what yeah. the valley like, is? Just that? like in California. It's like when you meet somebody, you go to IU. You yeah. know this, Jimmy. You yeah, go to so IU. Yeah. You meet some kid. And you're like, so where are you from? I'm like, oh, dude, I'm from Chicago. And you're like, oh, really? Like the Loop or, or you know, like the North Shore or like what part? Uh, Crown Point. Yeah, I got news for you. <laughs> There's nobody, nobody at Wrigley Field that's claiming Crown Point. You know what I mean? I mean, let's be real. Mike DeCourcy's next. Now we're going to talk to Mike DeCourcy here, but first, Jimmy. Jimmy, you got to, did you bring a change of clothing? No, I didn't. And I'm, um, you got to take the shirt off. Yeah, I know. Jimmy Cook, lifelong Kansas City Chiefs fan. Just, do you have your card with you? I, uh, you know, I, I left it at home today, Jake. Apologize. Well, you're going to turn it in. in. Probably your, your, your Chiefs fandom yeah. is forever questioned. I don't think you can wear the shirt and not have the card. That's a problem. I agree. Well, he's got the little friendship bead wedding ring that he'll be wearing on Sunday. Uh, listen. We're talking about famous people from Azusa Pacific, and I'm sitting there looking at it, trying to find one, and lo and behold, pop culturally speaking, Jimmy, who is like a top five beloved Kansas City Chief of the last 50 years? The Nigerian Nightmare, Krishna Koye. Who went to Azusa Pacific. Yeah, I know. So Jimmy Cook, diehard Chiefs fan, self-proclaimed, knows everything about the Kansas City Chiefs. We strike up random conversation about a random university that happens to be the home known for one thing about Christian Okoye, and Christian Okoye, Jimmy Cook, completely swung and missed and whiffed on the fact that Christian Okoye, Azusa Pacific. Jake, since we're explaining weaknesses in my game, I will admit, like, it doesn't matter if it's my favorite team or a team I follow, I am awful with where you went to school game. Okay. That said... I'm still ashamed of myself. I would assume that with him that had to be meant because it's so random, right? Yeah. Like but. I I knew he didn't start playing football until very older later in life. He didn't start playing until 23. I knew he was a track star, but I did not know it was at Azusa Pacific. So 
I'm disappointed in myself as much as you are. Joining us on the program now in a smooth transition, Mike DeCourcy with Sporting News to talk about you know his Pittsburgh Steelers were eliminated early. We'll talk college basketball. But Mike, before we do that, I have to ask, because of course you and I have shared the common space within Clues Hall before, so I know that you are someone like myself who enjoys a little theater performance. Have you yet or do you plan on seeing To Kill a Mockingbird as part of the Broadway series here in Indianapolis? I've actually already seen the production uh, it, on Broadway, so and it's quite good. It's 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 really a wonderful telling of that story, and certainly worth anyone's time. Uh, Deb and I went a few years ago when it first uh, made its debut on Broadway. Not long after that, and it was wonderful. Yeah, I saw it last night. Um, it was, you know, they added a little bit. In, what I thought was interesting, Mike, and I didn't know until after the fact. You know, I went back and look, kind of looked it up. You know, there were some some issues with the Harper Lee estate just over the liberties that were taken in terms of the the playwright of it. They added a. I didn't recall from the book. You know, there were some I thought pertinent like levity or a little bit of a a comedic nature to a couple of the characters that I think kind of made for a light tone to what obviously was otherwise a very important message. Yeah, I think that when you're when you're staging a play, especially one that's uh, very heavy, uh, sometimes a playwright will feel like it's a good thing to do. Uh, I've seen plays that were uh, there was a play I think it was called Blackbird that Jeff Daniels actually starred in that as well as when I saw the To Kill a Mockingbird, and it was just ninety minutes of like hit you in the head with with grim, and it can be hard. And I, I think that they felt like there was some potential to be to invite you into the story more so by doing it the way they did. And it certainly worked. Uh, it's been one of the most successful plays uh, in American history, just straight plays, uh, been one of the most successful commercially. And I, I don't think that they lost the message of what To Kill a Mockingbird is to be about by, by, by rearranging a few things. Mike DeCourcy is our guest. All right, Mike, let's get to, and well said, I totally agree. I enjoyed it last night. Hope people enjoy it when they go to Clues. Like I said, don't drink any beverages beforehand because there's only two restrooms. Um, (laughs) Now, Mike, college basketball-wise, I'm going to begin with Purdue because they, you know, listen, they've got the best resume for sure in the country, and I I love watching them play. So the first thing that I will ask you, does Purdue have better balance, and are they more capable of handling – a quote-unquote off night than they were a year ago because we're getting close to the time of year now where those whispers are going to start talking, you know, turning into louder conversations in terms of Purdue in March. Yeah, you know, I think I think that they certainly do. And, and what they also have is more answers than they did a year ago. And the question will be, is if those questions start to come up, and I don't mean the external stuff, I just mean on the floor, if on a particular night a particular player is having a rough go of it, how, how committed to this, well, this is the way we've always done it will, will the coaching staff be? I think, that, that, I think the flexibility to deal with the tournament as it's structured which is you're not playing the Lakers six, six times or seven times. You're playing whoever's on the bracket, and you get one shot, and they get one shot. 
And they're probably not taking the shot in the same way that you are. You're trying to be the best Purdue. They're trying to do anything that they can possibly think of, uh, including like uh, rhythmic gymnastics and, uh, you know, whatever they can throw into the the game plan, they're going to do it. And you have to cope with that. Uh, until you get later in the tournament, that's what you're going to be facing, at least for the first round, sometimes for the second. And as we saw, uh, because of the, the St. Peter's run to the Sweet 16 in, in 2022, uh, uh, excuse me, t- uh, yeah, 2022, uh, because of that, uh, you might even see that in the Sweet 16. So you've got to be ready for that, I think. That's 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 the concern. If if Switzer lawyers had some unbelievable nights uh, for uh, for Purdue, such as the Arizona game, where he was just amazing, he's had some not so great nights. And how do you mitigate that? Do you uh, do you go to Cam Heidi, or do you go all the way to Miles Colvin if if it's required, or do you say, well, he's always been our guy? I, I think that's the that's the biggest issue to me when you get into those games where you're playing uh, for your for your uh, existence so to speak and the other team is just knows that they they know they're not supposed to win and so they're willing to try anything to try to squeeze out that W Mike let me tell you one thing Mike DeCorsia our guest that I've heard lately and you tell me if you're kind of hear the same thing and that is look Zach Eady's a wonderful player, and by all account, just a really good young guy. I mean, his development, his progression, his improvement, his footwork, all of it. Great story all the way around. And then there are people that, you know, a year ago, obviously, there was talk, you know, he wouldn't be a first-rounder. He wouldn't maybe wouldn't even get drafted because the game has changed. I know that it's a dry year this year in the draft, allegedly. But I was talking to somebody that said, you know, he may be playing his way into like the 15-20 range in the draft, not necessarily because, not not just I guess I should say because it's a dry draft, but because he is a guaranteed commodity and teams respect his just nature of the way he goes about his business and they're like, you know, he's going to be a 10-year player. He's a safe pick and he's moving his way up those boards. Do you hear the same thing? Yeah, but I think it's even more enthusiastic that I'm hearing, and that is that yeah, it's safe, but it's also he is he is he has spent so much time and so much effort at conditioning himself uh, and training himself and or being trained so that that when he goes into a pick and roll, that it's not necessarily he can't handle it; he's overmatched, uh, and I'm talking about on defense, of course. That he can, that there are things that he can do in that circumstance to survive that, uh, because he's worked so hard on his body and his his stamina and his quickness. Uh, he's worked so hard on all those elements of his physicality that he can now he can now do that. And uh, Jonathan Gavoni, who I've known for fifteen twenty years now, and he is the draft analyst for ESPN. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, put Zach in his. Uh, lottery mock, his, his mock lottery. I, I don't remember it was 12 or 13 or 14 or whatever, but he was right there. And I thought that was a really enormous statement on behalf of Zach. And it does help that it does help him in this circumstance that it is a lean draft. It's not alleged. It's not alleged, Jake. It's really not good. Uh, but he, you can get somebody. What you, what you want to do in the draft, I, I think sometimes teams think, 
well, let's just take a chance. And the Pacers did that a bit toward the latter part of the previous decade with the teens or whatever you call them. Uh, they, they did that a couple of times, and it didn't fly. It, but when they have stuck to taking guys that can really play and that maybe don't have the ceiling that some others have uh, but are more likely to hit their ceiling, uh, I think they've been more successful with that. They've got a lot of, uh, of real contributors in that way. And I, I think that that's – you look at, at, uh, at what's going on with Jaime Jaquez down in Miami. Uh, he was taken, I think, 18th or something like that. And lots of the high upside guys went ahead of him. And he's out there tearing it up now on a, on a team that is relevant and, and contending. Uh, I just don't think you can ever go wrong with guys that you know can play. If you have real reason to believe that there's a prospect who's going to get there, okay. Um, But I've seen picks taken that – this is a true story. Uh, I I covered my first tournament game in 2021, the year that it was all here. My first tournament game was UCLA-Alabama, and it was like an overtime or double overtime game. So there's either 45 or 50 minutes of basketball. And there's a young man named Josh Primo that played in that game. And he was taken, I think, 13th overall by the Spurs. And I had spent 45 to 50 minutes in the gym with him, and I had no recollection of him having been there. How does that become a number one pick? How does that become a lottery pick? And he's not in the league anymore. Uh, I just I don't believe in that. I, I think you have to have real evidence that the player can play. Mike DeCourcy is our guest, covers all things college basketball for Sporting News. You see his work on the Big Ten Network as well as his bracket inside information for Fox, and that's where I want to lean into next, Mike. Be honest with you, I've kind of accepted Indiana's fate with where they are, even though it's January 25th, barring them making a complete turnaround and being a different team than they've been to this point in the season. Their NCAA tournament aspirations are dire no wins in quad one in terms of like the top tier wins that you can have to your resume. I won't go fully into the semantics, but you've studied it. As you look at what's left for them, even in the Big Ten, that's always presenting opportunities to pad your resume. Is there still a path for them to get to the NCAA tournament? Yes, but the path is a rampage. I remember the team that I always reference in these kinds of conversations is Washington of 2004. That's a long way to go back now. It's 20 years. But Washington that year came into – this is back when we still used the RPI rather than the net as the foundational tool for the committee. And they were like 95th in the RPI on maybe February 10th, right around there, somewhere around there. And then they won – and they were – but they had already started a winning streak. And, and they won every game they played for the remainder of the regular season including beating Stanford on the final day of the regular season at a time when Stanford was undefeated and trying to finish a perfect uh, regular season. And, and so that took them from 95th to around 50th or something like that. And they ultimately got in, but they completely redefined who they were as a team. And that's what you have to do if you're in Indiana's position now. You have to do all the things on the floor and maybe off that you hadn't done for the previous basically three months. And that's, that's not easy to do if you can do it. And like I said, it's happened. There's probably a more recent example than Washington, but that's the one that always sticks out for me, but it's very rare because teams 
kind of show who they are, and it's reflected to a great degree in the numbers that are out there. They show who they are, and they play to that for the most part. They may improve incrementally, and some improve significantly, but when you're in the situation that Indiana's in right now, significantly is good for the soul, and it's good to show that the program is heading in the right direction, but significantly won't get you to March. It has to be, like I said, it has to be a rampage. Mike DeCourcy, our guest. Mike, I got one other Indiana question for you. I And this is another one of those, have you heard rumbling type things, okay? Um, Khalil Ware, I, you know, I think he's definitely going to be a, an NBA draft pick at the very least. I think he's probably, you know, he, he might be one of those guys, and I mean this not as a knock on Indiana or any any anybody, his game might be a little more suited for what the NBA does because he clearly has talent and he's played well at times for Indiana. But I've heard that with him twisting the ankle and being out in his foot in a boot that there may be some conversation about whether or not he wants to just shut down in order to get ready for the NBA draft, which I certainly would understand. I've heard that. Have you heard anything along those lines? I hear that kind of nonsense all the time. Players don't do that. They don't. They just don't. If he has to because physically that's what's required, that they, they will do it, and usually reluctantly. I, 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 I can tell you right now, I heard some nonsense back last summer um, around the time that Chris Livingston was the last player taken in the, in the two-round NBA draft, that Aaron Bradshaw wasn't really hurt and his foot was fine and that it was all just a ruse so that he didn't have to honor his commitment to, to Kentucky and that he would, he'd never play there. And Aaron Bradshaw obviously had a foot injury because beginning in early, mid-December, he's out on the floor playing. He's still out there. I, I, there's all kinds of stuff wasn't, like that. Wasn't the there. same rumor out there with Shaden Sharp? Uh, no, because because Shaden never played. That's what I mean. Uh, but wasn't there like some thing of like Sharp doesn't want to play because he's saving himself? I, I thought like the his, same narrative his, was out his, there. His guy didn't want him to play, and that's true. I think I I I don't I believe that if it were up to Shaden, he would have played. Right. Um, but his guy didn't want him to play, and so because. He wasn't able to play for much of the year, and then when he was, there there was a feeling that because he was so far behind, that he would only he could only hurt himself. I always thought that was kind of nonsense. Uh, that they, that the NBA would respect if the fact that he was committed enough to give it a go, and that he wasn't going to get any shorter, and he wasn't going to get any less dynamic, and that he could only help himself by showing that he was a baller. Um, and if he and if he wasn't ready, they would give him a pass because he hadn't been available for three months or whatever the time frame was. But it's this is a different deal. It, players who are parts of teams they don't shut it down. Um, it, like I said, if if he's unable to play physically, uh, and and or if returning would would put him at at greater jeopardy of re-injury, then no, you don't play. But if you're healthy enough to play and there is no greater risk of injury for you than there is for anybody else that goes out there, those guys are going to play. I just haven't seen that sort of thing. I hear that, like I said, I hear that kind of buzz all the time about different uh, players. And it's always people just trying to sound smarter than they are. Mike DeCourcy is our guest. You can get his work at Sporting News as well as the Big Ten Network and all things brackets as well for for Fox Sports. Going back to... Bracketology for a little bit, Mike. Missouri Valley, Indiana State, very high up in net rankings. 
already an incredible resume, 17 and 3 on the season. You have Drake as a next four out team in your latest brackets, if I'm not mistaken. Do the does Indiana State, do the Sycamores need to win the Valley to make the NCAA tournament, or is that a two bid league if, say, it's Drake that winds up winning it? Well, I, I, um, I was asked uh, on Twitter the other day if Drake and Indiana State could both make it, and I said yes, but I don't think they can afford. I think they need to basically beat everybody else in the league and then play each other in the title game, and then one of them wins and one of them doesn't, and in that case, there's a chance. And then Drake went out the other night and lost to, to Missouri State, uh, whether that was Wednesday or uh, Tuesday, I'm not sure, but they lost subsequent to my most recent bracket to Missouri State. So, And, and Bradley's playing really well. The problem is that the Valley is, as it usually is, has been, is a very balanced league with a lot of good teams, uh, with lacking enough non-conference uh, performance to, to possibly put a team in. Honestly, I think the only shot now that the Valley has at a at-large bid would be for the Sycamores to run it, uh, to, to go all the way down, maybe one loss, and it has to be the right one. It has to be at Bradley or someone like that, uh, and, then, and then maybe losing the championship game. And then even then, it's going to be hard. But I, I think that if they did that, their, their numbers would be sufficient that they would be right in the picture. And a lot of the other teams that are out there, they, they're, some of their schedules and competition may be harder, but their teams aren't that great either. So they're going to continue to, to hurt themselves, as Miami has recently, for example. The, the Hurricanes have, have really struggled of late, and, and other teams in that region. Providence now, not because, really more because of injury or any, than anything else, uh, are in jeopardy, even though they put, got a nice win last night against Seton Hall. It's still going to be hard for them to sustain that night after night uh, while lacking maybe their best player. Mike, normally, Mike DeCourcy, our guest, normally a head coaching opening at DePaul wouldn't necessarily create ripple in Indianapolis. Although for me, nostalgically speaking, I so want to see DePaul get back to what I know they've been in the past. We'll see if that's even possible. But but there are some names that I've seen linked to potentially at DePaul. If something's happened in the meantime, I apologize if I missed it. But that have potential Indiana implications for fans of different teams in the state of Indiana. Um, Dusty May being one, you know, Josh Scherz at Indiana State being another. Are those guys even realistic? Where where does DePaul look? Yeah, I don't think Dusty May is realistic for DePaul. Uh, if you're Dusty May and you've been to the final at four, four at Florida Atlantic and your alma mater's coach is in his mid-60s uh, and there are other programs out there that have been traditionally successful, why would you gamble on a program where in the last 20 years I think there's been one tournament appearance? No, it's unbelievable. So uh, it doesn't – so you can throw – I can throw – I can throw uh, – uh, any coach, I can throw Doc Rivers on the list. I mean, it, 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 he's a capable coach, and he and and if they could get him, they'd hire him. But why would you do it? Uh, that that's not going to happen. Uh, the, the coach at Indiana State, sure, why not? Um, that's the kind of coach that you ordinarily could get. But I don't think that's where DePaul is headed. I think DePaul is going to try to get somebody proven uh, by overpaying, so to speak. And when I say overpay, look, you are what you're worth. What you're 
what you can get. But what I mean by that is paying above class uh, what, what they have traditionally paid and what others in their uh, in their league and 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 sort of uh, their weight class, if you want to call it that, uh, have paid. Uh, I think that they'll, they'll they'll be willing to do that and eager to do that if they can get someone who who has been a head coach and who is you know is looking for another opportunity. I, I've I've heard Bob Huggins' name, and that would be one that I could see happening. Uh, I could, I know Bob's not happy about the way his career ended. Uh, or his career at West Virginia ended. Right. I, I think I, I I think that he would be uh, that he would be willing to listen uh, to to getting another opportunity. And Bob is going to believe that having uh, won at Cincinnati in the manner that he did when they had been bereft, uh, won at Kansas State when they had been consistently mediocre. Uh, I think he's going to believe that even as difficult as it's been at DePaul that he's going that if he gets the opportunity that he could win there Mike I've always wondered this and I've asked this on the air even rhetorically because it to me it's one of the great mysteries of my last like three decades DePaul you're in Chicago I I mean you know when Ray and I know Ray Meyer had it cooking 40 years ago I get it right I mean it's been a while since been a while since Mark Aguirre or Dallas Comagees were, were walking through there but how has it gotten so bad, and what has prohibited them from getting footing? And, you know, there's talk even now of them leaving the Big East. I mean, what is the future for DePaul? Who's talking about them leaving the Big East? I heard – who? where did I read that there was conversation – I, I, I wouldn't think they would do it from a monetary standpoint, but that they would be no. better fit in a different league. Yeah, I, that's not, that's not going to happen. I mean, uh, they're not going to leave the Big East. Uh, it, it's it, the the money it would be prohibitive to walk away from. They're not they're not going to get into a better league than the Big East, and no one's gone backward in college basketball that I can remember. Just about, uh, I thought for years. Like, I covered Duquesne. It was my first beat in the Atlantic Ten. I thought for years that they they would have a better shot if they played in a different league. Uh, uh, but they've never gone. They've never. Uh, uh, considered going backward. Loyola, I thought, made a significant mistake by leaving the Valley to go to the Atlantic 10. They were under the belief that they'd have a better shot at a multiple bid. Well, why would you believe that? I mean, uh, that the, the Atlantic 10 was trending down in bids, not trending up. Uh, so I, I don't think DePaul is going to be in any hurry to leave there. I think the problem in general has been home court. I mean, they played for years at the All-State Arena, uh, it, it was not a good arena uh, at, at, at the beginning. It wasn't good. They fixed it up, and it still wasn't good. It also was out by O'Hare when Purdue. Excuse me, when uh, DePaul is nowhere near O'Hare. Uh, it just it, it was always the problem. And now they have Wintrust, which is a really nice building. I've been there. I've not been there for a DePaul game yet, but I was there for a concert. I was there. The NBA had uh, the combine there. I went for that. It's a really nice arena. Uh, in a in a growing area of Chicago, so now you've got something to build on, uh, but they just didn't hire the right coach the last time around. Uh, uh, coach Stubblefield is a, is a really really nice man and and a, was a great uh, assistant and recruiter for Oregon and for uh, Cincinnati, but it just didn't click. And so they need to get this right if it's ever going to get right.
college basketball reporter for Sporting News. Mike DeCourcy is our guest. Mike, when you look at Butler, are they still a year away? There's no doubt that they look better year two with Thad Mata, but when you look at their resume, what's available sticking in the Big East Conference, they still a year away, or could they surprise some folks, make a little run, and get in the dance? Uh, it's You know, it, it, there were times when I thought it was possible. I think they have enough on their resume that if they win on a significant run, they don't need a rampage, but they need – uh, they need to really scurry uh, in February. There's enough on their resume that if they did that, uh, they could they could be in the picture. It's not that far a trip. It's certainly a, a shorter trip for them than it is for the Hoosiers. However, again, it's not really who they've been. They haven't defined themselves as that sort of team, and and I don't know that it, it's likely. Uh, but I think that that's done a really nice job. And I will tell you, I mean, like everybody in basketball thought that they were like, okay, DePaul was probably going to be last, but then Butler was going to be at the at the table with them. Uh, you know, they're going to be at the kids' table or whatever. And that and they're, and they're nowhere near that. Uh, they have become a significant team in the Big East, a team that you have to worry about whether they're you're in their gym or they're in yours. You have to be ready to play. Uh, and they can, they, and they might beat you even if you are. So that's a, that's a big step for them. Uh, it, next year, if he continues to add to this, uh, I could absolutely see them back in. And as I said, I wouldn't totally rule it out. It's just a, it's just a big, you know, they, they've left themselves a lot of work to do with not a lot of time to do it. Mike, last I want to go back to something you mentioned because you kind of cracked the door open. So I'm gonna I'm gonna kick it here. I and. I want to be very clear for the sake of both of us. This is long-term conversation. I don't mean like in the next week here. But I, you know, I do think that there are a lot of Indiana fans that look at Dusty May and are kind of on the edge of their seat or, or nervous a little bit because they don't want to miss the window if that's the guy that they really want to ultimately take over the Indiana reins. Um, I guess the curveball in all of that, would you agree with this, is we don't really know – how long Mike Woodson wants to do this, and I still believe that it is Mike Woodson that will deter- will determine when Mike Woodson leaves. I'm totally with you on that. Uh, I think that that's absolutely true. I, one of the things that, that I don't really understand uh, is, I guess because you've added a couple of five stars or once uh, you know, with uh, Way- Khalil Ware and uh, and then you brought in Mbako, so people expect success to be immediate. It, it, they're not built for immediate success, especially having lost Xavier Johnson for a month. Um, you know, they, they invested in him as their point guard. They, they stuck with him. They fought for the sixth year. He got it. And then he got hurt. And then he came back and he wasn't, and he wasn't really uh, both feet in the circle uh, moving forward. I, I don't think uh, as evidenced by the, 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 the problems that he had in those couple of games, um, so I think that, that that's what set them back. But I think in the, in the future uh, that they need, you know, they, they're certainly going to need a point guard for next year. Uh, they certainly need to, to and the one thing I will say, I, I, I don't have a problem with criticizing some of his approaches. And the one approach that I just can't get with is the idea that, that you, that you don't incorporate three point shooting at the same at, at or near the same level that everybody else does. That's a, it's too important a part of the game. If the other team makes 12 of 24 threes or 12 of 28 threes, and you go nine, you know, you go 10 for 20 from, from two, 
you're way behind. Yeah, I just, it, Mike, it feels like, does it not, that they were putting their eggs, and I'm not saying this was the wrong approach. I mean, there was precedent to, to understand why they would do this. But I think that they were really invested, to your point, in Xavier Johnson being the guy that we've seen at his best. And, yeah. you know, whether it be injuries, whether it be whatever, whatever the factors might be, it just didn't work out in, for this year in that regard, and that really stunted them. It did. Uh, but I think in the future, they've got to incorporate the three-point game more than they did. They had Miller Cop a year ago. Miller shot like 44-6 or something like that. And his, his attempts were ballpark half of what they would have been at most major programs with a guy shooting that accuracy. It, it, it's got, it's, you gotta, if you get a Miller Cop, you've got to use him. And if you don't have a Miller Cop, you go got to go get another. Uh, because that's, that's too important a part of the game now. And that diminishes them. The game like the Kansas game. I mean, if they had somebody like Cop making three threes, they win the game. And, and that's, you know, that would have been a huge step forward for them in this season. From Atticus Finch to Dallas Comagees to Miller Cop, we, we got the whole spectrum in there, Mike. I love it. <laughs> yes, we did. I, I love it. I appreciate the time as always, Mike. All right, Jake. I enjoyed it. Thanks. I appreciate it. Mike DeCorsi from Sporting News and the Big Ten Network, of course, where you see him, one of my favorite guys, um, in particular because, like I said, when you can lead off the conversation about Broadway plays and mix in a little, you know, he's a Steelers guy, mix in a little fun with it. That The DePaul thing, I know that I harp on that, but I'm telling you, that's just a mystery to me. Why He makes a good point about the arena and, and the other such things with it but like why it's just never taken off there yeah you're not alone in that totally it's one of the more perplexing things in all of i mean you're right in chicago right i mean how does that happen uh eddie we've got um we're gonna send it right down the lane right between you don't want to get the middle arrow but just to the right of it to try to get a strike yeah they call it the pocket the pocket Mm -hmm. all right and you've got in your pocket a couple of passes we're gonna give away next right yes sir we're gonna do it this time with actual show trivia correct I'll come up with a few questions. You have to prove that you are a listener of this program. And if you can do that successfully, we have a way for you to be able to go bowling at Royal Pin Bowling up in uh, the north side of town, of course, at Woodland Bowl, Royal Pin. And in addition to that, a week's worth of passes to the PBA U.S. Open, which is taking place from the 27th through February 4th up there on the north side. So we will do all of that next. Strike to claim it. A strike to claim it. And he got it! That is why I did it! Another five! Are you kidding me? That's right! Who do you think you are? I am! Get it right! Get it right! February 26th of 2012, Pete Weber won his fifth U.S. Open. With that strike that won it and the iconic, who do you think you are? I am. I'm sure not exactly sure what that means to this day, but if you want to see somebody that might win a U.S. Open, maybe even their fifth, you can do so at Royal Penn Woodland Bowl up on the north side because we have passes to give away. That's going to be taking place the 27th through February the 4th. Do we get nine or 29 days this year? Yes, it's a leap year. It is a leap year. Now, here's what I don't understand. Is the leap year the year the leap year is the year that you get the bonus or do they take away? Bonus. Okay. Leap year gets you 29. 29's in February though, right? Not Correct. January. So in February. So but here's what I don't understand. It, on, this is going to be January 27th through February 4th. But if it's leap year, mm-hmm. 
the leap year should be the three years that you don't have the extra day, right? Because you were leaping from the 28th into March. You throw in that 29th. Does that mean because you got to leap over the 29th? Mm-hmm. Is that what it means? I think it has to, right? Because the new obstacle, you just got to leap over it. I, I, maybe that's it. And then, of course, it goes without saying, I, I saw, where did I see is having a big promotion this year that if your birthday is actually February 29th, you get like free admission someplace. They should do that everywhere. Can you imagine how bad that would suck to be born on February 29th and you only get to actually celebrate your birthday every four years? Ask Tyrese Halliburton. He's born, he was born on a leap year. Was he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, like, it'd be so like, I mean, I guess it would be a big deal every four years for your birthday to be extra special. Is it like a choose your own adventure at that point? Like, totally. you celebrate the 28th or you celebrate March 1st? That's like, a, what, that's which a really one good question. It had to be the first, right? Because you were born the day after the 28th. Right. Now, they have a, and this is really uncomfortable. I, I saw the other day, and I, I wish I had not done this, but they have a, a, an actual calendar, like a website dealio that you click on, you put in the date of your birth, and it tells you the estimated date of your conception. I, I don't, it was very, it was very awkward. I understand why you'd have regrets. And it actually, when I, so I typed in my date of birth, and it comes up, and, and, I'm, and it says, like, you were likely conceived on this day. And it was the day before my parents' wedding anniversary. And I'm like, this is way too uncomfortable. So now, like, do you celebrate that every year now? No, okay. You get a cake? My, my parents' wedding anniversary? Yes, I do. We <laughs> no, get a, no, we, no, no, no. We get an orange fluff cake from Taylor's Bakery <laughs> at 62nd and Allisonville. Uh, do we have callers lined up, Eddie? Yes. Okay. So here's how we're going to do this. Now, Eddie, tell us the fabulous prize that we are playing for here. So if you get the show trivia question correct, I'm assuming it's show trivia. It is, yes. You will receive a two-hour bowling pass for Royal Pin at Woodland, and then you will also receive a week pass for the U.S. Open, which is the 27th, so Sunday through February 4th, which is next Sunday. Now, tomorrow, we have to give away, we're giving away two tickets for somebody to go see the actual U.S. Open, uh, so it'll be on TV and everything. Very cool. Okay, here we go. Uh, who do we have lined up? We've got two just now calling in, so we can do the roulette style, or we have two that are already on hold, well, no, who do, just, stuck on hold during the break. We've got David first. David. David, you are, if you don't mind me asking, we're going to play a little get to know uh, your listener here, David. How old a fella are you? Uh, 43. 43-year-old David, okay. And you are a native of Indianapolis or a transplant? Indianapolis. Okay. Uh, what what side of town, David? Uh, northwest. Uh, so did you go to Zionsville? Did you go to Pike? Did you go to um, Burbuff? Pike. Pike, okay. Uh, now, David, we have a question here about now. how often do you listen to this program? Uh, almost every day. Intentionally? Uh, yeah. Okay. And how long do you hear the program? Uh, most of the day. Um, oh, wow. We Well, we are very appreciative of that. What line of work are you in? I'm a factotum. What's that again? A factotum. And what exactly does that work uh, entail? I'm kind of a jack of all trades. So <laughs> I do. I like that. I, I do accounting work, and then I also uh, deliver uh, to get my exercise and all that stuff. That's cool. So, all right, nothing wrong with that. Now, now tax season's coming up. Is that is that a big burden for you? Well, not that I don't do it full time. Okay. Now, you wish you did do it full time, or you just you, you get too many numbers running around in your head and you need a break? It's boring. Yeah, well, you, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, well, hopefully the show is in. All right, here we go, uh, David. 
Would you like a question about me, a question about Eddie, or a question about Jimmy? Um, actually, I, I can do the one from Eddie from the other day about oh. where he played baseball. <laughs> well, I'm, that that is correct. That was the question. What do you know where he played? Decatur Central. That is correct, but that was that was from the other day. So that <laughs> the, the terms have expired on that question. But I can uh, we could stick with an Eddie question if you'd like. I'd like to know how that stuck with him. I know that's impressive. He is a regular listener. All right, here's your question, well, David. You ready? Yeah. What is what is Eddie's title within Query and Company? CEO. Wow! Look at that. Do you know Jimmy's title? Uh, head Chiefs fan. <laughs> he lost that title. Yeah, I lost that. Today. David, he lost. Okay, how about this, David? Jimmy lost his credibility as a Chiefs fan when today what fact escaped him? That uh, the running back. Uh, Christian Okoye. Yeah, he, he he didn't know where he went to college. Well, he, he, I guess he figured it out eventually. But David, man, you are on it. You are absolutely Bravo. on it. Well, David, you're from the northwest side, which is good because you will not be far from Woodland Bowl, so it'll be quick and easy for you to get some buddies together and go enjoy some Royal Pin Bowling or perhaps even uh, the chance to watch some bowling. But, uh, David, I do – kidding aside, I appreciate your listening to this show, man. I appreciate you guys. I love the show. I appreciate it very much. It's David on the program. Nice with the uh, Eddie Garrison knowledge. Jimmy, the question about you was going to be... I thought it was going to be that, was it I not? think that just means I'm the most entertaining one here, and that's why they retain all this info. They want to know more about me. <laughs> Eddie's the most impressionable. It's because, the biggest it's because I have so much insulation, Eddie, here, insulation here. Eddie, we we know two facts about you, so it's easy to that's, differentiate that's, that's which That's not the true. Two. That is not true. Okay, how about this one? Uh what agreement do Jimmy and his wife have that befuddles oh. Jake on wedding day or on oh. game days? I don't think it's as much an agreement as much as it is a tolerant, right? She tolerates it, right? Right, yeah. How about this? Here's a good one. If somebody got this, this would be really good. If somebody nailed this question, that this would be like grand prize level. Name one gift that I brought back for you guys from a trip and name one gift that you've brought back from a trip. That would be dedication because that's spanning multiple months. Yeah. Multiple trips, multiple items. I'm trying to think, though. I've only brought you guys back three things, I think. Mm-hmm. You brought back when you went to London, you brought us back the um, phone booth piggy banks, right? Yep. Which are cool. And then I brought you guys back from Amsterdam a bottle of Heineken with your name on it and a chocolate, right? That's correct. A Belgian cho- I think it was was a Belgian chocolate or Dutch chocolate. Um and then I brought back the shrimp chips for Eddie from San Francisco that he immediately complained about. Remember that he spit them out and said like, "Well, this is these are terrible." Yes. I, I found that to be extremely You also um, brought back a, you also brought back a navy t-shirt if I'm not mistaken as Oh, well. that's right. I forgot about that. What sport did I give you? Was it you rowing? Remember? I feel like it was rowing. I think that's right. I gave you rowing and Eddie different ones. So I went to the Naval Academy, and you could buy the shirts that have the different sport names on them. By the way, I didn't buy it, and I meant to take a picture of it, but I totally forgot. When we were going to London, we went through O'Hare. The orange oh, candy the, bar the you got me. The drop box? <laughs> no, I did not see the cannabis drop. The orange candy bar you saw me, apparently they, or you gave me, Apparently, they also make or export here in America, and so the English version of that bar yeah, I'm was sure, that. right? But I, I was surprised well, by that because sometimes it is. It's, that's, well, that's, to be honest with you, that's the hardest thing, as you know from when you went to England. Right. 
the hardest thing is to know, like, I mean, in in today's day, you can get anything Correct. anywhere, right? right? And so you're like, man, I don't know. Like, is this really, like, how, how do I find something that you can't get? I think it was called Tony's. I don't know. Yes, yeah. yes, that's what it was. Yep. Yeah. Yes. I think it was Dutch. I didn't know this when we were in Amsterdam. So Renus VK, and this is very esoteric, but Renus VK, the IndyCar driver, when he first came up, and even in the first couple of years that he ran an IndyCar, his sponsor was Jumbo. Okay. It's kind of a maroon color with gold, and it's a Dutch company. And I always thought Jumbo Cigarettes, because that was a, when I worked at Hardwick's, Jumbo Cigarettes was a, a uh, I think camels made them, but they were like camel wides. They were a bigger cigarette, and they're called Jumbos. So it was like a like a craft cigarette. So I thought that's what it was, and I didn't realize Jumbo is like the Kroger of Amsterdam. Ah, and let me tell you, not a big store, which is weird, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. So clearly they didn't. But maybe everything comes in a trunk. I don't know. But e- either way, um, I-, I thought it was an odd name for a store. We'll come back, uh, come back and put a bow tie on it. By the way, JMV today is at the dugout over off Mass Ave. Very cool place. And he is going to be there, of course, from 3 until 6 o'clock. So your chance right now, if you are hearing my voice and you are within vicinity, why not stop by, enjoy a beverage, and get to see JMV and see him broadcast live. He will be there from 3 until 6 o'clock today at the dugout on Mass Ave. We'll hand it off to him in just a couple of minutes as well. You're listening to Quarry and Company here on, a, is today Thursday? It is. A Thursday, yeah, 93.5, The Fan. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a f- athlete. This is my f- way. This is how I win. Today's Plays of the Day, all NBA. First, we'll take the Minnesota Timberwolves, one of the money line over the Brooklyn Nets. Four Sixers Pacers. Tip off 7 o'clock. Maybe I'm the problem, but I don't care. I'm going to keep being the problem, I guess. I'll take Pascal Siakam's over once again. We've got to hit this bet since he's been a pacer. It's over 20 and a half is the total tonight. In that same game, give me Buddy Heald. Over two and a half total three-pointers. Eddie, Australian Open men's action tonight. You playing anything there? Yes, I am. I'm taking Danny Medvedev on the money line over Alexander Zarev. Zarev just beat the second best in the world, Carlos Alcaraz, two nights ago. I think the emotions of that will take a toll, and his uh, miracle run will end against Mr. Medvedev tonight. How do you feel about Novak Djokovic? You staying away from that other... uh, I like Joker. Too much juice. Minus 200. Don't want it. Minus one ninety five at some books. If you're That's really feeling still way risky. too much. Was that cleaner today? You didn't face palm like you did yesterday when we went Australian Open. I'm lost on ninety percent of the lingo that you just threw out. Do you know this is probably the lamest college story of all time? But freshman year, when I was like, I mean, obviously I'm still big into sports. Clearly, with the career path that I chose, but this wasn't even like I was betting on it. The Australian Open final. Dahl was in it. I can't remember who he was playing, but it aired at like 3 or 4 in the morning. It had been one of those nights where we'd been staying up late, so I stayed up and watched the match. Again, probably lamest college story of all time, but it's just around this time of year, it's a major. It gets lost in it. I'm not like Eddie where I'm looking at like first round or second round matches so necessarily. But how late did you stay up? The match probably aired at like 2 or 3, and it probably went till 5 or 6. I don't know. That was like every night that I was in college. Well, right. But I mean, again, the idea of sitting down and watching tennis, it, objectively, it's a lame story, right? The No, here's the thing. I think, I, honestly, to kind of have your back here, Jimmy, I, I do believe high-level tennis is probably one of the most underrated sporting events, if, especially if you go and watch it. Like, back when they used to have here the RCA Tennis Championships, mm-hmm. if you got like low-down seats on it, 
I mean, it is mesmerizing. The hand-eye coordination and the ability that those players have, it's unreal. So, I mean, I get a big a big match. Look, you know, like JMV and I were talking about yesterday. I mean, you're talking to somebody here, as he and I were talking about yesterday, that that was, I mean, the majors and the big tennis tournaments for the better part of, you know, yesteryear were a major thing. I mean, it was a big deal. And it's interesting to me that tennis has fallen out of, you know, golf had a resurgence. I mean, obviously because of Tiger Woods, right? Not even a resurgence, but probably a rise that it's, you know, that went to a whole nother level in terms of people wanting to watch it. Mm-hmm. And, and that level of interest for golf today is what was the level of interest in tennis from probably 78 to 90, somewhere in there. Like it was kind of a golden era of starting with, Buren Borg and then going into McEnroe, Connors, Becker, Sampras. And it is interesting to me that right now between Nadal, Djokovic, um, who's the third one? I, I can't, Federer. Federer, thank you. Um, Quentin Tarantino. That You know, I mean, there's probably never been an era where the top three players were at the level of these three, and yet it's not as mainstream. It's just not. I feel like the ones that like they all matter, right? And you're correct. Your point is valid. But wouldn't you agree? Like Wimbledon, still like it, where it's at in the year with these stars, it's still there. But I would agree, it's probably not to the level it was. Yeah, I mean, it was just a lot of it too. Television sports programming has just changed so much because there are so many channels. Mm. So you know, at the time that Navratilova and Chris Everett were doing you know, the women's finals every year, and then the men's finals were the names that I'd mentioned. Like, during that time, you know, you had ESPN, but that was really the only sports cable provider. So you watched what the networks told you were the big deal. And in the sports calendar nationwide, it essentially was the, you know, obviously the big three, the World Series, the Super Bowl, the NBA Finals, Wimbledon, the Kentucky Derby, and the Indianapolis 500. I mean, that was the calendar nationwide of the, you know, at the dinner table back when families used to do that, the conversation of, hey, who happened to win blank today? You know, and and that was, you know, I remember, I mean, the Indy 500, it was on the cover of Sports Illustrated on Monday and, you know, on the next Thursday. And, you know, it was the topic of conversation nationwide on the 11 o'clock sportscast. And the same was true of Wimbledon the u.s open the australian open and the british open it just you know and and oh the masters yeah, was the, masters, the other one yeah, on yeah, that list yeah. i mean the masters obviously was a huge deal as well and in the same way wimbledon is even if the other majors lose national attention that will always be an event that right after march madness you're there right appointment viewing uh all right jmv's up next he is going to be at the dugout we are back with you noon tomorrow pacer sixers tonight we'll be talking about that two minute drill tomorrow as well